Aloha, guys. Welcome to the Vicious Cycle Podcast. Uh, tonight is going to be our first night attempting to uh, have a guest call in. And so uh, bear with us if there's any uh, technical difficulties. I've done a couple trial runs, and uh, so far so good. Um, I've definitely noticed that the audio is dependent on uh, the other end service because I've got strong Wi-Fi here, so doesn't seem to be the problem is on this side sometimes, but if for some reason service cuts in and out, um, it can't affect it. Well, so hopefully that doesn't happen tonight, but tonight we have uh, Jason Tiny Walcott, and um, this man has fished just about everywhere and fished for just about everything, and uh, I have been friends with him for a very long time, and I actually don't even really know where to start this conversation because there is just so much subject matter, so instead what I've decided to do is... We're just going to give him a call and uh, see where it goes completely organically. So uh, let's see how it goes. All right, Cap K, you there? Hey, hey. there he is. How Welcome you doing? The- Good, man. Welcome to the show. Thanks, dude. Yeah, this is Jason Walcott, a.k.a. Tiny. This is kind of an interesting one for me because um, Tiny is not only a legend, in my opinion, he is one of my really good friends, so I need to try and make sure that I can keep a real honest uh, conversation going here without being overly biased because I admire this man, and i got to make sure that uh, this isn't just a fan page. We want the good, the bad, the ugly of fishing. Um, I'm going to have to admit, uh, Jason, I had a bit of a hard time thinking, where am I going to start this conversation with you? And um, you know what I'm going to do? Just a Break the ice a little bit. Where are you right now, and what are you doing? All right. Well, it's about a quarter to 10 minutes to 1, 12.49 a.m. I am in Delray Beach, Florida, which is in uh, Palm Beach County. And it's a uh, spectacular Friday night. Went out and ate a bunch of sushi tonight. I'm in good mood, ready to uh, help uh, do your podcast here I'm, I'm very interested in what you're up to and what you're doing so thanks for uh, having me on your show well thanks for being here i really appreciate it before we get too far uh sushi of choice uh chutoro otoro bluefin tuna hands down yeah no no question no question beautiful fish um we had actually had this conversation off the ra- off the radio a little bit but i myself have an addiction problem to bluefin <laughs> And, uh, oh my God, it, you know, I, I hate to say it, but you know, like anytime you look at any, um, past sustainability problems, you kind of understand why those things are just absolutely delicious. So absolutely. They're, it's just unbelievable. It's like, I, you know, people say things melt in your mouth, but that really does. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. And it was off the chain tonight, it's aged like three weeks. And then, uh, you know, sashimi, it was amazing. It was incredible. Sounds very oily, yeah. just the way you describe it. Yeah, oh, the yeah. Toro is just the, is just incredible. And uh, fortunately, uh, in our U.S. domestic fisheries, my God, has it made a big comeback in a lot of places. So that is a good thing for sushi lovers and fishermen alike. Maybe uh, at some point we can actually get the market where it should be. But that's a whole different subject that I'm not going to get into right now. I hear you. Yeah, so what are you doing right now? What uh, what kind of boat you're running what, what um, right now, I'm currently running. Um, it's a uh, it's a 120 foot motor yacht. It's actually a mothership uh, called the Grand George with the uh, 
the uh, grander people, John Stark, he's a legend. He runs a fish boat. Um, I've just started on, on this uh, operation. They're old friends. It's a, it's a lot of people involved um, that um, I've known for 20 years, a long time. And they're going to do a lot of the Bahama tournaments, Bermuda tournaments, and so on. And I'm pretty excited about it. You know, it's a pretty tight-knit crew. Uh, Vito Mora, my engineer, I actually uh, traveled around the world with him. He's from Brazil, but I traveled around with the world with him on the French look 20 years ago, 21 years ago. Okay. So, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't mean to step on you, but you know, for my listeners at home, um, our, our walk, our, our, you know, our, our following comes from all over. And if you could just kind of describe to the people what like the French look and like, even like when you say a mothership, what does that mean? Yeah. So, so a mothership's basically like, you know, uh, an, ex, you know, uh, a, 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 a sport yacht or, you know, a converted work boat and the fishing boat operation. Um, a lot of the boats, there's, there's been several of famous ones that have traveled around the world, you know, either world record fishing or trying to fish in new places. So basically you have a mother, a mothership, which is basically a large yacht um, that can either carry or tow or support a game boat. Um, as you, uh, you know, as, as you know, of course, but maybe your listeners, you know, there's mothership operations pretty much seems like they started on the, from what my understanding is they started on the, on the barrier reef, you know, just to give, uh, the fishing fleet, a, a more sustainable, uh, more time on the, on the edge, you know, and being it without coming back into town. So, so that's kind of taken off, you know, um, you know, motherships have been around for a long time, obviously, and I've been fortunate. I've gotten to work on a bunch of them a bunch of the more famous and well-known ones that have traveled around the world, you know, and crossed the Atlantic and the Pacific a couple of times on them. So yeah. Fishing new places, you know, it just gives yeah, you so, more range more or less. Yeah. So when you were on the motherships in the past, uh, was a lot of that stuff exploratory? Was that world record fishing? Was that both? W- what was the role you were playing there? Yeah, it was really, it was really both, you know, um, I, uh, I'd fished on the Madam and the hooker, um, which was probably one of the more famous motherships, in the early nineties. And then, uh, in the late nineties, I got on the, uh, the French look, which was a much bigger, uh, more modern operation. Um, they both were GNS game boats and they were awesome boats. You know, they were, they were both designed to, to world record fish. And that was pretty much the focus world record fishing and a lot of exploratory, uh, fishing in places that hadn't really been fished, you know? Um, so, I went to, so when, I went to Cape Verde, you know, Madeira, so on across the Atlantic on it. Now, now I know that me and you, when we talk about this, we know these locations, but for a lot of other people that are just chiming in and, and just discovering uh, about the world of mothershipping here, uh, you know, what kind of places did you go to? And when you say world record fishing, what exactly does that mean? That means you were just fishing for the biggest fish in the world or, or different types of line class. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, right. So, so we were fishing, we were fishing uh, super light tackle, light line classes, um, we fished, we fished all line classes, but, um, you know, when, when records were obtainable or, you know, relatively easy to break, we went to some pretty unique destinations and, you know, with the, with the focus and goal of breaking these records on light line. Um, so we, we actually did a lot of that in Cape Verde. It's, it's not, you know, it's the biggest fish of the line class, not so much, uh, obviously of the biggest fish ever caught, you know? Okay, so when you're saying line class, and again, it's for the people at home, you're saying that like they're, you know, like the line would be, I don't know, just like 16 pound, 20 pound, 30 pound, etc. For each one of those line classes, um, there would be a record to break, like the biggest fish ever caught on that line. Is that correct? Correct. On that line class. Exactly. 
You've got and, you, they're spot on with that. And, and were you yourself ever part of any of these world records? Absolutely, we broke several world records. I think um, I think there there may be one or two left standing that I was a part of. Um, uh, one of them was you know I, I caught a sailfish on the the uh, the madam and the hooker, and then we we broke the women's 12 pound test blue Marlin Atlantic blue Marlin record, uh, with Fonda Heisinger. Uh, that was 350 pounds on the head that we caught on 12 pound test. And then once we broke that wow. record, we went after the, uh, the women's eight pound test record, which was held by Marg love. I believe it was in St. Thomas, the Atlantic blue Marlin record was Marg love in the early nineties in St. Thomas. And that was, uh, two, 293 pounds was the record we had to beat. And we actually killed one uh, 289 pounds in eight pound test. So we were within oh, wow. five pounds of breaking the record. And um, that was a pretty exciting fish. I got to tell you, I'll, I'll never forget that one. We destroyed a bunch of gaffs and tore the tuna door off the, 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 the tuna door off the boat. And uh, it was, it was full combat, you know? That's amazing. Out of your time. So how many years would you say you actually traveled in these mother shipping operations? Um, you know, I've been a part of a mothership of, you know, operation for my entire career, whether it was the, 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 uh, the Madam, the hooker, or the French look I was on for two and a half years, the Madam and the hooker I fished on in 1993. And then again, I think it was in, uh, it had changed names. It was, it became the God's will and God's favor. And I was on it in, uh, bomb bomb Island, Africa, Principe and Sultime in, uh, 2002, um, so I'd fished on that boat a couple times, you know, or been a part of that operation. Um, wow. I've also been a part of the, yeah, I've also been a part of the blue water cat, uh, mothership operation. And then most recently the bad daddy, which was a 76 Spencer and a 130 Westport. That's incredible. So of all these years spent out at sea and mothership in particular, like going to exotic locations, what was the most amazing thing you saw on land that you didn't expect to see? Man, I, I'll tell you, the most amazing thing I ever saw on land that really uh, blew my doors off is I, I saw, I, I, I was fortunate enough to be on the French Look at the time, and we we got a unique charter that relocated us from uh, Cape Verde all the way to Japan, and being a my part God. of that operation, yeah, being a part of that operation, I got to see a golden temple in uh, in northern Japan, and it was absolutely in Kyoto, Japan. It was absolutely uh, incredible, and I, I couldn't believe that fishing actually took me there to see that. You know, how many nautical miles of a move was that for a charter? That's incredible. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge. We actually we actually got the charter uh, when we were in Cape Verde. And I just really signed up for the Cape Verde season. And then there was a possibility of going to Brazil after that. And then we got this charter and uh, it was a charter by a Japanese makeup company. And they were doing some uh, exploratory. They wanted to do exploratory water sampling all throughout the Pacific. So what I signed up for was to go to Cape Verde. And then we got this charter and they paid a tremendous, they paid a, they paid a million dollars for six months and relocation fees. And they only used the boat about four days a month for this water, the mothership for four days a month for this water sampling. And it was really incredible because it, you know, we had, we carried 65,000 gallons of fuel. So when they weren't using the boat, we were just out fishing, exploring, diving. We had full use of the boat, you know, cause it really, it really didn't cost anything to operate the game boat. So it was, 
it was an awesome experience, you know. Wow, that's um, incredible. Yeah. So, so for the folks at home, Cape Verde is where? It's just off the, the coast of West Africa, uh, basically off the coast of Sierra Leone. And, and what I tell people if they don't know where it is, it's, a, it's an island chain um, just off northwest Africa. And if you ever look, you know, in hurricane season in the Atlantic, that's where all the hurricanes pretty much start, where they roll off the Sahara right there onto offshore, just offshore of the Sahara there. And that's Cape Verde, Sierra Leone, right where the bend in North Africa turns south, or I should say east, actually. That is amazing. What would it cost somebody? Now, that, that charter obviously is extreme, paying a million dollars. But if you yeah. were doing a charter, what would it cost the layman to come, say, fish a week with you folks back then? You know what? I don't I don't remember what they were charging it. I wasn't really that wasn't really the department I was in. Um, the, all, all that money always changed hand in the, hands in the states through agents and stuff. Um, roughly, I think back then, I think it was pretty reasonable back then. It was about twenty two hundred dollars a day. You know, with oh, the wow. use of the mothership and the game boat. I, I think just don't hold me to that, but I, I'm pretty sure that was about the price back then. We're talking well, 20 I mean, years ago, you know. That's that's not that's not much more than a charter on the East Coast today, really. And less yeah, than yeah, it was pretty reasonable. It was, yeah, it was, it was very reasonable back then. Okay, so the temple in Japan was the most beautiful thing you ever saw on land. What yeah, was the most temple. beautiful or, or what was the most beautiful or the most incredible thing you ever saw out at sea now i don't want to inject in this is just gonna i but i do recall you telling me a story one time about a piece of debris floating and if if you could mention that as well i believe it was off the amazon that would be incredible all right so let's see i'm trying to remember the story um I've seen some massive stuff. I've seen some incredible things at sea. And, I, you know, I, I rack my I have to rack my brain on this. On, on, on Which one are you talking about now? I'm, I'm thinking about the Amazon story. Well, maybe it's not. I, I, I remember. And this is probably going back. <clears throat> this is probably going back. Maybe. Oh, man, I have to rack my brain, too. This is a lot of drinks ago. But <laughs> uh, I believe you told me this story maybe in like oh five. Okay. And I remember you telling me that you had found something when you were traveling uh, on their radar that was marking so big that it it confused everybody because it looked like an island, but in yeah. reality it was like this giant, uh, maybe like a giant yeah. mangrove thing that had broken off. Yeah, it was bamboo. It was a giant chunk of bamboo. It was actually in the Bahamas. It was it was actually in the Bahamas, and um, it it was off of San Sal. Uh, San Salvador in the Bahamas is where it was. And it was incredible. It was a huge, it was a massive mangrove. It was a massive bamboo island. Literally, you could have stood on it. And, uh, you know, it was loaded with peanuts and stuff. And I remember we caught a blue marlin right around it. Right, what do you mean right by peanuts? That morning. When you say it's loaded with There peanuts. was like small, small, small mice my, under it and stuff. There was bait on it. There was tons of bait on it, you know. Like a lot of like, when you say bait, like like a lot of tunas hanging around it, like small. No, it wasn't tunas. I remember there was a bunch of peanuts and a bunch of Almaco jacks, peanut my mice underneath it and stuff. We caught a blue marlin that morning around that thing, and I remember looking at it, and we, there was nothing on the chart, and it was literally it had to have been at least an acre of two, but it was just like a chunk. Why you probably think remember it was the Amazon because that's where we thought it probably originated from. It. It literally looked like an island that had probably washed a bamboo island that washed out of a river, you know, and it was yeah. super. It was huge. It was big. I I, I remember now. The, you you stumped me with the Amazon there for a minute. Yeah, sorry. I just always remembered that story because you know I yeah. always I you know I emphasize to people all the time when they work for me 
to pay attention to the radar because you just never know when something might pop up. I'm like, you know, I'm very crazy about that because I've had many close calls uh, in the middle of nowhere, uh, you know, where people just really, I know a lot of people that get very lax about the radar. And I always mention that story to people that, Hey, my friend, you know, like he found a thing, like if you hit that, it would be major problems. You know, yeah, it it literally looked like the thing on the, if you ever saw that movie, the life of Pi. If you ever saw that crazy island that he ended up on, if you ever remember that thing in the end of the movie, um, with the meerkats on it, did you ever? Oh, see Oh right, movie? yeah, yeah. It's been a long time, but I do recall, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was that. But you, you asked me like what the most beautiful thing I ever saw at sea was. Um, man, yeah, that's such a. There's you know some millions of beautiful sunrises and sunsets, but I will tell you something that stood out was the. Uh, I guess they would have been right whales, and possibly maybe even. I'm not sure. Don't hold me to this, but possibly blue whales off of West Africa. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, they would like dance and breach and they were just bigger than anything we ever saw in Hawaii. I mean, these whales were like just massive. I mean, the pectoral fins were like 40, 50 feet long and they they almost looked like alien like, you know, when they were doing their dance. That and probably the uh, the flying fish spawns off of Cape Verde. Oh, tell us about that. Yeah, that was so amazingly intense. I'll never forget that morning. Um, we were running out on the game boat. It was uh, Captain Jody Whitworth and myself and Mom Mario Laria, and we were running out. And uh, Jody called me up to the bridge. We were running to our normal spot, which was south of a uh, um, of town there, where we uh, where we fished a lot. And we we're fishing right off the Cape Verde Lighthouse on the southern coast. And Jody called me up to the bridge, and he was like, "He's like, man." Look, tell me if this doesn't look strange. Look at the horizon. And I'd look out and we would see like this, this shimmer on the horizon. And it was almost like the water was moving on top of the water. And it looked strange. Neither one of us had ever seen this before. And we were probably, you know, two miles away. But everywhere you could see on the horizon, it was just looked, looked so weird. Like you could not figure out what was going on. And by the time we ran up to it, you know, we ran another two miles we were in just miles of flying fish in the air. When I tell you like millions of flying fish, it had to be millions just getting up. And um, it was incredible. There weren't any tunas. There was, we never got a blue marlin bite that day or a tuna bite that day. But the flying fish, like when you would spook them, they would go by the boat for literally minutes. You know, wow. it was just like a you've never seen so many Malolos in your whole life. I mean, I, I've never seen it since anywhere, not in the Atlantic, not in the Pacific anywhere. And it, I guess it was just a flying fish spawn. And when they showered, it was miles of flying fish getting up at a time. It was incredible. That sounds incredible. Now I think, you know, personally, from some of the listeners who would know at home, uh, I personally don't have a good relationship with, uh, flying fish so for me that sounds like it would probably be terrible um yeah. i mean it sounds beautiful but i uh <laughs> i personally uh i personally have been hit so hard on the end of my penis by a flying fish one night that uh <laughs> i almost actually canceled the fishing trip offshore i you know i went outside like half awake on watch and it's flying fish and i mean it was a big flying fish and and uh, this fucking thing so perfectly hit me on the end of my penis that uh, I, 
no, it's a true story. For like three days, I debated whether I should have gone into the trip because I just had like this severe swelling. This thing had just smashed the end of my dick. So for me, like I'm not really like a huge fan of like flying fish. Every time I see like someone with a photo of a flying fish, I kind of think like, yeah, that's cool. Watch out for that fucker. You know, like I don't, I don't have the same love for flying fish that a lot of people do. You know what I mean? Right. But like, right. Yeah, I, I hear you. I, I, I mean, I mean, it, if that happened to me, I think they were Satan spawn too. But yeah, I mean, I, I'll tell you. But I will tell you, I've been hit with them too a few times. Never, never in the penis, but I've been, I've been, <laughs> I got hit in a, in a solar plexus one time by one, and I, I thought I was going to my knees. I mean, I, it almost dropped me like a sack of potatoes. But well, you, a little, an interesting little fact. I just want to add with the flying fish. Yeah. So when we were and we were talking about the French look earlier, so we we left the Panama Canal and we were headed to Hawaii and then on to Japan. And uh, we found a, 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 a case with a couple hundred shotgun shells uh, that were starting to get old on the French look. So what we did was we'd, 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 uh, I, I know there's a lot of uh, tree huggers out there that might not agree with this or not, or, or shun it, but I don't care. We did it anyway. We, we broke out the shotguns. We didn't shoot skeet. What we did was we shot at flying fish. And I can tell you this right now. We went through hundreds of shells between Panama and Hawaii. And, and the, the total death count of flying fish was only three. Well, they <laughs> three fast. confirmed kills between Panama and Hawaii of a flying fish. So I'm telling you, those things are tougher than you think, number one. And, and they're definitely very agile. Oh, you know they're tough when you get hit on the nuts. I can tell you that, bro. Oh, yeah, I hear you. Oh, man. I think I've you get a, a flying fish tattoo personally on your nether regions. Well, that was, could be a problem because it would interfere with the eel tattoo I already have down there. But ah, great. I <laughs> yeah, thought it was more yeah. like a hundred dollar. I thought it was a hundred dollar bill last time you told me, but was that, none of my business. Oh God, was that before the cover up? I'm not sure. The last time we talked. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh boy, it's, it's going. This is going downhill quickly. I can see. Yeah, it. yeah. Let's 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 get away from the uh, nether yeah. region tattoos. Uh, <laughs> So, got a question for her. So yeah, man. You, you fished on those motherships all over the place. Where was the best fishing as far as big fish you ever saw? How about this? How about best numbers for action for Marlin? Definitely and- Cape Verde. Cape Verde. 100%. Okay. Um, we raised, I think our, 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 our final count, we, our, we averaged one for four, which was a horrible ratio, but we were trying to catch – the 130 all tackle record. We were doing some light tackle fishing. The week that we were we were light tackle fishing um, with the legends with some legends on board, which, ha- which happened to be Peter Wright and Bobby Brown on the bridge. Right, no pressure from above. Mm. Um, with Mikey Latham as a guest wireman. Um, this, is pro- this is probably some people you should explain to people who don't. Yeah, know these who guys they are. are the best of the best. They're just absolute legends, as you know, to your to your audiences. These are guys you can look their names up. You can Google them. They're absolute legends. Peter Wright is a legend on the around the world, but you know, notorious for tuna fishing in the Bahamas and the Great Bar- Black Marlin fishing in the Great Barrier Reef. And Bobby Brown, uh, you know, he started his career in Hawaii. Has the still holds the. Pacific Blue Marlin world record, 130 world record. Um, Mikey Latham was, uh, uh, I'm not sure he's still fishing, but he had wired numerous, numerous uh, world records. One of the best wiremen that ever lived all over the world. So these guys were all on board and we were, we were focused on catching, like I said, that 12 pound woman's world record. Um, Yeah, they, they, uh, 
they were on board that week. And it, it, with the exception of that particular week, I, I think if I remember the count and I have it in a log book, we raised 123 blue mar- 122 blue marlin in a week. We baited 56. And the best day we saw, we raised 23 fish. Um, when you say baited, you mean that some fish would come in, but they wouldn't bite? Or what, what, what does that exactly. mean to people at home? Right. So we were actually teaser fishing. So we, we had no hooks in the water. So we basically had four teasers in the water, which were lures without hooks. And we were fishing, you know, like, like I told you earlier, we were fishing 8, 12, and our heaviest pitch rod that we had rigged was, was 20-pound test. I'm sorry. You're going to have to explain to people at home, too. What is a pitch rod? Okay, so a pitch rod is basically a rod that has a bait and a leader attached to it that is in the boat. The leader's coiled. As a fish comes up in a spread, you tease the fish close to the boat, and the angler actually pitches the bait out of the, uh, out of the boat, um, and you make a transition. You, 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 you bait and switch the fish. Basically, the fish is on the teaser. You pull the teaser out of the water, and you present the bait to the fish. Um, the reason we do this is obviously when you have lures in the water or when you have lures in the water, you can cover a lot more ground. And, you know, Cape Verde is very rough. Um, but when you pitch the bait, you get the hookup ratio of a bait. Lures, obviously, you know, are not a very good hookup ratio. And you can't really pull lures on ultralight tackle. Well, why is that so, for the people at home? When you say lures aren't good ratio, you're, you're comparing that to, to bait? Is that right? Yeah, I'm comparing. You know, when it comes to hookup ratio, when you can when you can feed a fish a bait and it swallows it to its stomach, obviously you're going to hook that fish, right? Where a lure, a fish comes up, he swats at it or he eats it. Um, when you, you say know, swats it, you mean with his bill, right? With his bill, yeah. Right. So, so obviously, you know that it, it's completely different style of fishing, bait fishing. When you're world record fishing. Um, back then we were fishing J hooks as opposed to a circle hook, right? Uh, meaning so what? J- What's that? Meaning what? What's the difference between a J and a circle? Okay, so a circle hook, is, a circle hook is designed to hook a fish in the corner of the jaw, and it's really you know for conservation. Um, the the mortality of the fish goes up greatly when you fish circle hooks because the the hook always embeds in the jaw or it doesn't embed. With a J hook. If a, if a fish swallows the bait all the way to his stomach, the hook's going into the stomach lining. With a circle hook, if, the, if a fish swallows the bait all the way to the stomach, what happens is because the hook is in the shape of a circle, it doesn't catch necessarily. It works its way all the way to the corner of the jaw until it takes you know, a sharp angle and then the hook is buried usually in the jaw latch of the fish. I would like to intervene on that and just say sure. – most of the time that that's best case most scenario. of the time yeah most of the time Cir- circle hook does have collateral damage too so let's, let's it does yeah i mean it sometimes it misses so but Absolutely. yes there's no doubt and sometimes it catches gill rakers too so right yeah yeah right. yep. but, but but definitely definitely better for the fish unquestionably but um it still has some collateral damage nothing is perfect i would just like to i would just like to to mention that that's all sure please go sure on. it's a blood sport if you don't want to hurt fish don't go fishing Right. It's really interesting <laughs> that you said that. I mentioned that. Um, I just mentioned that the uh, if it wasn't last night, it was the night before in the podcast. That is very true. I am very I'm a huge um, proponent for catch and release. But the truth is, if you don't want to hurt any marlin at all, don't put a hook in the water because eventually exactly. you're going to hurt one. For sure. And when you're world re- record fishing at that time, 
we, we weren't trying to uh, hurt them. We were trying to kill them. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> to put it bluntly. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so it's, it's a unique, it, it, it's a full team sport. People don't really understand it. Um, when you try to explain it to them, it's something you just really have to get out and experience. Um, it's more of a, it takes a full team effort. Everybody has a, a very specific job. Um, the fish's ultralight tackle is never really worn down. You're just trying to stay connected. You're trying not to break the line. You're not trying to fight the fish. You're not trying to wear it down. What you're trying to do is stay connected to the fish to where the captain can maneuver the boat within range of, of the fish so the crew can take a shot at it with a gaff. And that's and it all has to be done almost like a simultaneously in a ballet usually happens very, very quickly. Well, you know, Tiny, you know the intricacies of this uh, inside and out, but a lot of my listeners aren't going to. So could you kind of explain right. in a little further detail when you're fishing for a marlin? Let's say you, you've, te- you've teased the fish in and, and you know, you've been able to switch the marlin off the lure and ate your bait. You're hooked up. You're now fighting this fish. Um, All right. For the people who don't know, can you kind of explain that, there, that, that there's a gaff man, a wire man? Can you kind of explain an angler, the captain driving? Can you kind of explain everything that's going on? Because I think a lot of people at home aren't going to really know. They, they just okay. don't know what's yeah. happening there. Yeah, no problem. So, so you, let's start with a boat. Okay, you can't you you can't you can you can attempt the world record fish on any boat, but usually the boats that have been successful in the past are designed for maneuverability and speed in reverse. Right, you have to have these two things in the boat to even get close when you're fishing ultralight tackle. Okay, so GNS Boats, one of my, my favorite boat builders in the whole world, um, they built very bare bones boats that were designed to go in re- reverse and to be extremely maneuverable. The, a lot of their boats uh, planed in reverse that they designed for world record fishing. So they actually got on plane like it was going forward and they had reverse engineer propellers and and unique you know, cuts in the bottom to help the boat lift out of the water and to be very, very maneuverable. So you start with a boat. Um, when it comes down to everybody having a job, the angler's job is to basically stay connected to the fish. How they do that is by having a very good knowledge of where each line class is going to break, number one. Number two, the knowledge of the angler, and this is where all the skill is, is how to cushion the line and gain line on, on the rod and reel without breaking it and being able to put the rod tip in the water and create angles to where it's almost like using the water as a pulley or a lever to be able to, to gain line, to keep the, you know, as the captain is driving the boat in reverse. Then you have the rest of the, the crew or team. You have a single wireman who is usually somebody who's highly experienced. What does a wireman do, Tiny? The wireman is going to grab the leader. Okay, so the leader is the end of the line, which is heavier than the main line so if we're fishing for instance we were fishing 12 pound test the leader we fished was actually double twisted piano wire into thousand pound cable into a giant hook a 130 hook these are the, that is the terminal tack and, and how long was um, that leader for that class of line 15 feet 15 feet that's what you're allowed everything included hook leader everything was 15 feet and when you say on, everything on, do you guys would you have fished what a double line, and if so, can you explain to people what a double line is? Sure. So a double line is the main line on the reel, which let's say we were talking about 12-pound test. 
that would have been the 12 pound test doubled with a bim, a not called a bimini twist and the line is doubled and we only use two or three feet of that because it creates extra drag that you don't need but the reason why you double the line is purely for knot strength um the connect the connection of the main line to the leader to the swivel which is attached to the leader so the leader again is your terminal tackle so okay so we've got our wireman we've got uh so what's going on our angler is cranking we're backing down let's just so just kind of to 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 set the scene for someone who doesn't understand or has never witnessed it one of the you're talking about planing reverse. How fast are these marlin going? Like, what? Why is this reverse so fast? Like, how fast is a marlin going? How fast is this fish moving? Well, it all depends. I, I don't. I've never put a, a radar gun on a blue marlin, but I mean, obviously, uh, it's a fast fish. It can eat a wahoo that swims at sixty miles an hour. So, you know, who know? I don't know what the 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 top out speed on a blue marlin is. They say a sailfish is the fa- fastest fish in the ocean. I, I'm not sure if I believe that or not, but um, these fish are very fast, very agile, and they're one solid moving muscle, you know, as you've caught many of them, you know this, I know your, your, your listeners may not have, but, um, so again, you have to have a very, a very fast boat, a very maneuverable boat. And, um, you, you try not to, if you get too much line out, light tackle fishing, if a fish pulls too much line away from the boat, the line will break just from sheer drag pressure of going through the water because you're fishing ultralight line, right? Well, you know, it's interesting, and a lot of people don't know this uh, probably that are listening. Um, and, I, and I say that, and I'm not saying that condescendingly, but I'm looking at the number of people that have been listening, and I thought, man, there is no way that a lot of people, for the number of people that I'm very fortunate and very blessed to be listening to my podcast, I think to myself, mm-hmm. there's no way they know a lot of the intricacies that we're talking about. But right. no matter what the line class is, if you get an excessive amount of line out when the line actually breaks more often than not is in the belly of the line and not close to the fish because what will happen is that the tension in the line in the belly of the line like let's say a marlin gets you know hundreds of yards of line out on 130 pound class line uh, it will actually break in the middle so um, a lot of people are kind of surprised a lot of times they'll get the line back and there'll be a whole bunch of line missing but the thing is, is that a blue marlin will go so radical that the line that breaks isn't close to the fish. It's actually the belly of the line that that fish was able pr- to produce by going absolutely nuts. Right. Right. Yeah, that's for sure. It's, that's definitely accurate. Um, so what would you do on that really light line? Would you guys have to back it way off? Would you? Absolutely. We, we, we lived in free spool, right? If a fish made a blistering run a lot of times the as soon as the fish woke up and and realized it was hooked um surviving the first run was the hardest part and a lot of times the first run on ultralight tackle the reel is completely in free spool uh, are, there's there's no drag there's no point in putting drag on it you're just trying to stay connected you're not trying to fight the fish or wear the fish down you're trying trying to stay connected you're hoping the fish stays on the surface jumping um, because if it jumps, it can be, it can be killed if it's on the surface and you're just trying to survive that first run. Once the fish settled down, settles down a little bit, the next, the next task for the angler is to get line on the reel, which is not very, not easy to do with a lot of drag and tension on very light line. And you only have a quarter pound of drag on the reel. So a lot of times you can turn the handle and you're not gaining any line. 
that's where a really good angler angler a really experienced angler comes in they learn how to put bows in the line to where it act the water actually serves as a pulley off the corner of the boat you actually are creating a bend in the line just so you can gain a few inches onto the reel so in light tackle you're actually using that belly in the line as an advantage versus a disadvantage is that correct exactly exactly a, a good light tackle boat captain will actually back create a belly in the line close to the boat which works almost like an old-fashioned pulley because of the bend in the line and the sharp angle in the line it creates enough slack that the angler can wind you know from the rod tip to the water line and gain line with the belly continuously in the water if that makes sense because the boat is creating the belly from the water pressure going in reverse or in forward you know it's really interesting you would say that I often have people tell me uh, out here, commercial fishermen that do not want to catch marlin, that they free spool the fish uh, trying to shake the lure. And they always complain right. like, oh, we even free spooled that fish and we ended up catching it. The hook was buried. And I always think to myself, well, you were free spooling the fish. But in actuality, because, you know, six or seven or eight hundred yards of line got out on these big fish. There's so much drag in that belly, you're actually burying the hook further inside the fish. Like my, per- absolutely, isn't that amazing yeah. how that works? Like my experience is that yeah. if you actually want to get rid of a mar- marlin, the best thing to do push is the drag up. push the drag up, give it as much drag yeah. as possible early on, and it's either on or it's off. But giving it light line, I've actually discovered that the belly in the line buries the hook. You know, so that's kind of sure. interesting how. You guys are doing that with record fishing. You guys were already kind of on top of that. And that's something I've witnessed in commercial fishing is that if you try to release them, you actually usually make it worse. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it was all about getting line on the reel, Um, which is, you know, people, the the skill, you have to understand the skill of, of a world record angler is almost like a sixth sense it becomes so tuned in and refined from breaking so many fish off. Uh, when they're when you're really focused on on catching world records, you're going to lose a hundred to one that you actually catch. You know, it's not more. Well, that's but so every single one that you hook is a learning experience. You know, do you really think it's that high? Do you think you lose a hundred fish at the one world record? Do you think that's man? True? I, I think yeah. I think it could be even higher than that at times, depending on the record, depending on the line class. And, um, you know, I could, I've seen it as high as that, you know, um, you catch fish, you'll catch smaller fish. You'll stay in tune. You'll practice with smaller fish, but you know, um, the one, so many things have to fall into a line. The planets have to align. The moon has to align to actually make it go down. That's why it's so hard. It's not for everybody. It's for very few people, you know. Um, it's definitely for discriminating anglers that have caught everything and and really are going after the next level, you know. And with a lot of the laws now, it, you know, this type of fishing is it's getting uh, it's 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 getting more and more. There's less and less people doing it because of a lot of the U.S. laws and being a U.S. citizen and so on. Um, because there's certain laws that especially in the in the uh, Atlantic that prohibit you from killing smaller fish, even in other countries, you know, as a U.S. citizen. Well, it's interesting you would say that. Um, 
I myself, I've been very fortunate to be part of uh, multiple uh, world records. I believe it's eight, um, including being crew and captain. And um, some of the reasons those records are never going to be broken in my case don't so much have to do with the fact that bigger fish aren't out there, but the regulations. So, um, well, right. you know, sadly, I, 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 I still hold as a captain the codfish world record, the junior world record. I that most likely will never be broken in broken. New England, but will probably be broken in Norway uh, because of the rules they have made to improve their fishery. I mean, they just keep producing one fish after another. Um, but I was the deckhand for the tiger shark. Um, well, I've been deckhand for the whaler shark and um, the tiger shark world record in Cairns, Australia. And uh, I remember that. Yeah. And both those records are probably going to stand for a long time. Um, the, the, the junior world record on that. And, and one of the reasons that you are no longer able to legally keep a Marlin, uh, I'm sorry, a shark over, over a meter. So obviously a tiger shark or a whaler shark or any of those sharks that I was a part of, um, they're going to be over you know, three feet long, basically more or less three feet long. So, I mean, they're, they're way bigger than that. And, um, tiger shark might get broken someday. Um, but you know, I looked recently and the tiger shark record that I was part of, uh, was a 1071 that has stood the test of time for junior anglers. Uh, we had a 13 year old angler and that, uh, that angler still, still holds it. So, um, awesome. Yeah, man. Like, so I don't know if that's, um, ever going to be broken just because of local regulations and not just because of regulations, but because of our culture, we kill less and less sharks. Like I think there's giant sharks around Hawaii, but in Hawaii, we don't kill sharks. And uh, I think that's a good thing. Um, there are very few that are taken for subsidence and I have no problem with that whatsoever. And culturally they keep them for drums. I would never judge that. Um, but for the most part, like in Hawaii, we see tiger sharks um, right in the harbor. Like when I first started, yeah. for example, everybody threw fish in the harbor and we would see no tiger sharks. Today, um, I park my boat in the front of the harbor and any time a marlin is thrown in the harbor, 100% of the time, a tiger shark shows up. They <laughs> seem to be very... Laverne. Uh, not just Laverne. Laverne, <laughs> this, Laverne is great. So uh, we have a shark in Kona, Hawaii that is referred to as Laverne. And she is definitely the biggest shark that comes into the harbor on a frequent basis. But a lot of the sharks that people call Laverne are not Laverne. There's probably three to four that come in on a regular basis. There's one um, that the divers have nicknamed Popcorn, which is probably the one I see most often. And uh, I hear people call her Laverne, and that popcorn is easily like 700 pounds smaller than the real Laverne. But if you've never seen a tiger shark in the harbor, um, you would think, oh, my God, that is Laverne. You know what I mean? So oh, yeah. if you've never seen, like, Laverne is big. Laverne is a very big shark. I um, I see her once in a while. I, I Where I tie up, I see her on a regular basis. So, um if you've never seen a big tiger shark, if you even see an 800 or 900 pound tiger shark, you are going to think that is giant. But the truth is, and um, 
when the thousand pound mark on a tire shark is very rare, uh, even like Marlin. So like the Holy Grail of Marlin is a grander, which means it's over a thousand pounds. That's actually true in shark. I know guys who killed, uh, you know, lots and lots and lots of sharks and very few of them actually go over a thousand pounds, despite what people think a thousand pound shark and a thousand pound Marlin are a very, very special fish in Hawaii. You probably won't see another thousand pounder weighed. I would guess in my lifetime, because the way that we have gone today, um, people just don't kill them. You know, the last one I can remember being killed was the Linda Sue, you know, him, Jeff Hines. Yeah, yeah, I remember that guy. Yep. And, and fuck, Mike Tal- that that guy, he just turned 80 uh, earlier this year. He's the old man to see. He is a crusty motherfucker. He drinks beer to the dick, <laughs> you know, like pisses in his beer can, throws it over the side. The guy's a legend, whatever. You're not going to change him. Uh, but, you know, like he's probably the last guy who killed him, a thousand pound shark. And they camped out behind his boat for like three weeks. I thought they were going to kill him. So I would think that oh, who's guys, they? Who was they? The uh, local guys? Yeah, who, correct. Oh. Like true Hawaiians. He, they, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. people. Amakua, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, people that 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 respect Amakua. And I, I don't, uh, I don't have anything negative to say about those people. To be honest, I got to say, like, I'm a transplant here, and uh, one thing about Hawaii is that a lot of people come here and try and change the culture. I came to Hawaii oh, yeah. because I love Hawaii. Like, I remember getting here and thinking, like, God, this is a beautiful place. I love their culture. So, like, I'm not trying to change anything. I agree with them. I have never killed a shark. Uh, I, 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 well, hold correction. I'm not a liar. I have never killed a tiger shark here. I have no intentions. I have killed a couple Makos here um, because they came up dead. And so we were able to sell those and harvest them. But, like, for me... You will never see me hurt a tiger shark out of respect for, you know, people's Amakua. And Amakua basically means like somebody's um, spirit animal. Yeah, I mean, that that is a very abbreviated, but basically it's somebody's family. You know, it, it, it's um, it's somebody's culturally important unit. And and so for that reason, I, I 100 percent respect them and I'll never hurt one, you know, and uh, yep. and, I, and and I truly mean that. So. You know, I think that's one of those things, uh, Tiny, that um, going forward, uh, going forward, I think you're going to have less and less um, killing. Because honestly, I mean, the last shark I can remember was Jeff Hines, and that was years ago. I I don't think anybody's going to weigh one. I really don't, because I think we're a little more woke, if that's if that's the right way to say it. I think I think we understand that they that sharks are not only culturally important to the Hawaiians but also super important to our ecosystem. So um, I, I don't sure. think we're going to see any big ones killed like that anymore. And actually, yeah. yeah, all things considered, I wouldn't be part of killing another one. I, I killed that world record when I was younger, and today I wouldn't want anything to do with it. Uh, that was a long yeah. time ago, and I wouldn't want to do any, any part of killing one today. So sometimes sure. we grow up. And sometimes our thoughts change, but my thoughts today are, I have no interest in killing a world record shark. That's just not me. I have a different feeling about their understanding. So your mother shipped all over the place and you talked about where the most numbers were. 
Where is the best? Yeah, Cape Verde, I would say, definitely had the most numbers. But where are the big um, ones? Where's the most big ones? Was that gone? And there's some giant fish. There's giant fish in Cape Verde, too. And, I mean, if you talk to some of the top captains in the world today, they will tell you the biggest ones they ever saw uh, were in Cape Verde. You talked about Barky Garnsey, Peter Wright, those guys. They've all seen the biggest fish, biggest blue marlin in the Atlantic they saw in, in Cape Verde. But Ghana, again, you know, great numbers, big fish, wait, wait, average what do you mean, size what, what do you mean again? Have you spent some time in Ghana? Absolutely. I spent uh, two seasons in Ghana and um, I, it was on aboard the hooker. It wasn't a mothership operation. It was a second hooker and we had a house in Ghana and um, it was uh, 2002, 2003. And uh, we also went to Principe and Sultame. Which, which hooker uh, Bomb, is this? Because I know a lot of boats named hooker. Is this like the right? Okay. So, so this was the second, this was the second, uh, hooker built by Jerry Dunaway. So Jerry Dunaway built the Madam and the Hooker mothership originally uh, in the 80s. And that's a boat and that traveled he, around? Were you on that operation? I, I was on that operation in okay. 1993. Okay. And uh, brief, briefly in 93. And then he sold it uh, in the mid-90s and it became the God's Will and God's Favor. And then um, I fished on the second... He, Jerry then built... A second boat called the Hooker, which is also a GNS, and he shipped it to Madeira, and then uh, he sold it. And where sold where, it where, to, where is uh, where is Madeira for the people that don't? Off, know? off the coast of Portugal, basically. And so why did he it, ship it there? Is that a marlin fishing spot? Or yeah, it's a, it's a giant. It's it, you know, there's some of the biggest Atlantic blue marlin <clears throat> have been caught there in the late '90s, even up to the World Cup a few years ago was won there World Cup blue marlin tournament. Um, so it's, it's a notorious big fish spot. Off the coast of Portugal. Correct. And what is this World Cup you're speaking of? I, I mean, I hate to keep asking you questions that I know that you know, but a I lot of the people that, that you are, know, you know the answer just to. don't have no have any idea. Yeah, so the World Cup Blue Marlin Tournament is the is a turn is a worldwide Blue Marlin tournament that is held on the fourth of July. Uh Robert Fly Navarro is now in charge of it. It's been a tournament going on for a long time. Um it's fished around the world in each time zone. And it's it's one day, and the goal is to catch the biggest blue marlin uh, in the world on that day. And I believe what is it a five hundred pound minimum now? Um, uh, I, I don't. It is five hundred pounds. Five hundred. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it's very you know you fished it, I fished it. It's a very exciting tournament. Um, it would be life changing for be- most of us crew, honestly. Absolutely, absolutely. I, give I a mean, shout out to I mean, your, maybe uh, should mention your this. close friend Diamond Dave for winning it a few years back, right? Well, 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 Diamond Dave is so funny. So Diamond Dave, I love Diamond Dave like an absolute family member. I love that guy to death. In fact, you want to hear a crazy up to date story? So Diamond Dave, um, I love Diamond Dave. I always tell people that Diamond Dave is like my oldest child. He has. He's your man child. He is my man child. He has lived with me for I don't know how many years now in multiple houses. And sadly, um, I think he's going to be fine. He seems to be doing better, better. We call it the COVID castle right now. So in my Ohana, Diamond Dave is currently quarantining from COVID. Uh, so he got COVID, I don't know, maybe like uh, eight days ago or something like that. He seems great. I have to bring him Skittles once in a while. And I'm, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've loved that. I've been dropping off Skittles and ice cream at the door and then he tries to talk to me and I'm like, okay, just stay in your COVID castle, but leave me alone. And I feel a little bit bad because I'm kind of, you know, being socially awkward, but, um, 
I also don't want to catch COVID, so no offense or anything. So we are you feeding them bananas with a grabber or what? <laughs> no, well, dude, it's, it's pretty bad. I have been feeding them. It's like, can you get me Skittles? So I go and get Skittles, and they kind of like fucking throw them Skittles from like twelve feet away. <laughs> like, I love Diamond Dave, but yes, Co- yeah, Diamond Dave definitely was the captain of uh, the World Cup. But I myself, I have never seen the money fish on uh, on a World Cup day. The best I've ever done. Last year, fishing with Kevin Nakamura out of uh, out of Kona White, we caught two three hundred pounders, and that's the closest I've ever gotten. Most of my um, World Cup days have been a total strikeout. I just I have not had a shot at the million pounder or even a qualifier yet. But Diamond Dave, uh, my man child slash um, tenant, who has been renting from me year after year, and I'm going to get him on this podcast. He is fucking hilarious. Uh, oh yeah, we are very yeah, fortunate that that he was the captain on a uh, on a boat uh, out of Maui. Um, it's kind of weird. He was kind of hired as a captain. He was kind of hired as a crew. But anyone who's seen the photos can clearly see that he was behind the helm, and they wouldn't have caught that fish without him. Um, he has won the World Cup, and uh, at the time it was like one point something. I don't know. I mean, he would probably get pissed from me saying this, but they didn't take very good care of him. Like they really didn't. Um, the industry standard for most people that are listening is 10%. Um, they they paid him 10% on the base, which was like 75000 But the uh, you know with all the extras, I think it was like 1.1, 1.3. And ah, they didn't really take care of him. They didn't give him a full 10%. They were trying to give him fucking 10 grand. And I don't even care if those guys are listening right now. They tried to fuck him. They told him at one point, they were like, oh, yeah, we'll give you 25%. And I thought, Dave, you better get something right. They're not going to give you 25%. And then they ended up winning it with him. Uh, he ended up catching the record-breaking fish. And then they're like, oh, well, I didn't expect you to actually win it. You know, like, so, you know, th- th- that's a good tip right now. I mean, one thing from fishing, uh, you know, if you are a young angler, and I, and I hate to say this, but if you are in tournaments, get yourself a contract. Would you agree with that, Jason? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially if you're fishing with people that you are not full time uh, employed by. You definitely listen, you know, fishermen are fishermen and business is business and fishermen aren't necessarily the best businessmen, as we have seen in the past, you know. So it's it's nothing more than than business. And it's it's an agreement. And I strongly recommend anybody if they're serious about tournament fishing, no matter what the scenario is, whether you're full-time or part-time or you're flying guy, definitely discuss everything up front, get it in writing. Um, we have all been burned at some stage or attempted to be burned. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I like to get, I'm a, I'm a handshake kind of guy. Um, and I, and for the most part, I do still go on a handshake because of, depending on the situation, but I strongly recommend having, a written agreement, you know, um, you know, the guys who are putting up that kind of money to win that tournament, they're all businessmen. They do, they don't do a business transaction without having paper. So this should be no different. And that's, that's my strong opinion on it. You know, those are beautiful words. And I'm glad you said that. I personally have also been kind of burned on some of these things. Uh, one problem I've had is that I have spent my whole life believing that your handshake is your handshake and your, and that means that's your word. And, um, you know, I had less problems kind of early in my career, um, on different boats where, you know, man, I always got 10% or more, which is kind of industry strand standard for a crew. And then, um, you know, I do remember I signed a contract one time, which was seven 
half percent of the gross for bit uh for bisbees but you know that was just like way more money so that's understandable you know bisbees is the biggest money tournament in the world and so i was fine with that because seven and a half percent of bisbees is probably still life-changing because the guys i was with were you know they were playing across the board but um Sure. I had a couple things in my last year of charter fishing, which actually came after I was um, tournament fishing full time. And, uh, you know, it was the first time in my career I actually got less than 10 percent. And part of it was, um, you know, part of it was because that was what the captain negotiated. And the other part of it was because the people just kind of sucked. And um, and uh anything is better than nothing, you know, like you're like, well, they're sure. handed this. Are you going to say like, Hey, fuck you. And you're like, you're not, you know, like, but, yeah. but you know, and, and the thing that people confuse a lot of times is they hear all these crazy numbers thrown around. They don't realize most captains and crews really are almost paycheck to paycheck. Like it's amazing when somebody hits like a fucking huge, a lot of win like that, but that's not the norm. Most fishermen, we're just, you know, we're doing our best to survive. We're like one trip to another to, you know, one week to another trying to pay our bills, feed our family. And uh, so it's kind of crazy sometimes I've witnessed <clears throat> that people will get these huge wins and then they don't really kind of take care of the people because they think, well, I put the money up. And then you're like, yeah, you put the money up, but the captain and the crew that was on board put 30 they years of their life into the catching that and the knowledge that it took to make that happen. So I would just say if you're listening and you're tournament fishing and you think that you've overpaid your crew, eh, you probably haven't. So just, 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 just take care of the guys that took care of you because they love fishing and they have had a lot of hits along the way to get to that point in their career. So I know everyone's happy when you catch a big tournament fish, but please just remember your crew. Like, you know, they do a lot for you guys that you don't see. And um, there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff. There's a lot of fucking wins and losses that you're, you just don't see that get you to that point. And sometimes that's taken for granted because um, you get on a boat or you get with a crew that's so good at what they do. It's kind of a misrepresentation that what they do is easy. So I just say before you tip out or before you give your percentage to any uh, crew, whether it be just a regular charter or a tournament win, try and consider you know, the amount of wins and losses they had to get you there. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And if you really, you know, it comes down to the preparation and the behind the scenes, which is always, you know, I've always put that the thought of that out of my mind because it counted the hours of preparation and the hours of rigging that go into the, the tournament game. If you really put a dollar amount on those hours, none of us would probably fish for a living because it would be that depressing. You know what I mean? So it's, it, it's fueled by passion, of course, and, the, and, 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 and competition and, you know, being competitive and wanting to win. And that's what a lot of people, especially in the charter tournament scene, like out in Hawaii, a lot of people don't understand what goes into that. And they don't understand that, that most of the guys uh, in, in that Harbor in, in Hawaii out there where you are, you know, they, they live the whole year waiting for that tournament season. You know, they, 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 char they charter fish and they make a, a living. But when summer rolls around, the first tournament rolls in, you know, that's that's everybody gets excited. Everybody looks forward to it. That's what they, you know, that's what I live for when I was there. I know that, you know. 
Yeah, there's no doubt. Like, uh, it's not really kind of talked about so much publicly, but there's no doubt that the tournament season um, definitely affects people because it has the potential to really change your income. The uh, charter season or the tournament season, I should say, um, you know, for a lot of these guys, if you win 10 or 20 grand or, you know, God willing more, that's a, actually a really big portion of what a deckhand or a captain makes in a year, you know? So like an extra 10 grand or 20 grand goes a very, very far way across a season. There are a lot of very um, barren periods, if you will, in charter fishing where there's not much work. The tourists aren't here. Uh, there's just no work, you know? And so, uh, that summertime, that prime time, those tournaments, boy, that is just a time frame that we, we, we you know, we, we all want. We really desire that. And so, um, you know, I know for someone who's putting all that money down, it's a really, really exciting time. But uh, particularly for the crew, it, it not only is it exciting, it's potentially life-changing. Like, there's no doubt. I mean... If you took what an average deckhand makes, like even today, right? Like an average deckhand makes under probably $150 a day base salary for an eight-hour day in Kona, Hawaii. Sure. So if they have a chance at making, you know, ten grand in a day, that's huge. Think of how many days that's the equivalent to fishing. You know, that, that that's just that's just giant, you know? Yeah, that's a big deal. Absolutely. It's a, it's a really big deal. And um we're about to experience something, and I'm, I'm I'm wondering how it goes. Oh, it keeps rolling. Um, again, you know that this is very early on my podcast, but uh, when you're recording by yourself and uh, you hit 59 minutes and 59 seconds, it kills you. But uh, it's apparently when you are tapped into someone else at 60 minutes, it keeps rolling. So I'm stoked on that. I thought we were going to have to have a uh, we were going to have to have a break, but we don't. Cool. So. I want to ask you, Tiny, because this is something I've always been fascinated. Ghana, Africa. Okay. Tell me about your time in Ghana, Africa, and uh, what was happening there, and the fishery, and what's happening there today. Um, it's an awesome place. Um, really loved it there. Uh, I got to fish with Clay Hensley, Bo Jennings. Um, and, Who are and those guys? Team. What's that? Who are those guys? Are those, are those uh, so the captain? Clay, Clay Hensley was—he's a. Le- they're both legends, uh, you know, as far as worldwide fishermen. Uh, they've fished all over the world. Have caught world records. Bo is is Australian, you know. Obviously, um, you know, maybe your listeners don't know, but Bo is Bo is. I believe he's up to. He's killed uh, eleven granders, I believe now, counting blues and blacks. I think he's eleven. That's me. Fish over a thousand pounds. Fish over a thousand pounds. Correct. Um, Clay is on like I think four, I, I believe, or five somewhere in there. Um, and uh, I got to fish with those guys out there, and we had a, a really cool operation. And we had a house on the Volta River in Ghana, and uh, it, it was it was an awesome experience. The, the first year I went over there, we took the boat from Ghana to Bomb Bomb Island, and we fished the season in Bomb Bomb Island. There, uh, where's Bomb Bomb compared to Ghana? So where Bomb is Ghana? Was, okay. What, what someone okay, looks so at Ghana, Africa, where is, where is Ghana? Okay, so Ghana is in West Africa, right next to uh, Togo and Nigeria. So it's basically what is known as the Slave Coast, and I believe it's the Gulf of Benin. Um, 
uh, in the Gulf of Biafra, the two major gulfs that are right there. It's basically where Africa, uh, you know, turns east and then turns back south again. Um, um, it's very close to uh, this is uh, on the, the Congo, side, Nigeria. Correct? What's that? Is this on the Atlantic side? Is that correct? Yeah, on, on the Atlantic side. Correct. It's West Africa, okay. Northwest Africa. And um, so Bomb Bomb Island is basically, uh, it would be 500 miles more, give or take, um, southeast of Ghana. And it's off two small islands that are off the Congo called called uh, uh, Principe and Sultaman. Bomb Bomb is actually a speck of an island that is uh, next to Principe. Um, it's known, it was known in the 80s and 90s for an amazing giant Atlantic sail fishery. So some of the biggest uh, sailfish in the Atlantic Ocean uh, were around Bomb Bomb Island. That's what it was known for when I first heard about it when I was and how big a is teenager. That? What's that? And how big of a fish is that? So 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 the average, you know, I guess I don't know what the average Atlantic sailfish is these days, but I guess probably 30 to 50 pounds would be about a good average range. And the fish that were off Bomb Bomb, number one, the numbers were incredible, but I personally witnessed several in the 100 pound range, um, which is like, you know, the size of almost like a Pacific sail, which is a different species, obviously, right? Right. And uh, so, so, so these sailfish that were uh, off Bomb Bomb were giant back in the 80s and 90s. And I remember reading about it when I was in school. And, uh, you know, the first time I'd ever heard about it was all about sail fishing. And, and then they discovered an amazing um, blue marlin fishery there. The fish weren't big, but the numbers were pretty incredible. Um, I think what, while we were fishing there, if I remember that, right, I think I had five or six blue marlin in the spread at the same time. Now, was that a little bit further offshore from the sailfish were? Because probably a lot of people at home don't realize this, but, you know, most of the time, in my experience, sailfish are a little bit shallower billfish. Would you agree with that? Yeah, correct. Correct. Uh, honestly, I, I, you know, the sailfish were just bycatch for us because we were strictly targeting blue marlin. And um, so we didn't spend a lot of time inshore. And yes, I would imagine, you know, if we had focused it, we would have been in a much tighter. Um, but we were we were focused on the on the on the blue marlin and the blue marlin fishery. There was super unique uh, in Bomb Bomb. It was um, it took us a little while to figure out where the fish were because it seemed like they were moving constantly. And uh, Bomb Bomb is just basically in one of the major mi- migration routes of blue marlin. And what we learned quickly was um, to read the birds. As fishermen, you know, we all read birds. Birds always lead us to the signs of life and fish. But in Bomb Bomb, we figured out quickly it was crucial in the morning when we came out and we wanted to make a decision of which way to go. Um, we figured out that if we followed the birds that we saw, you know, leaving land, that they always led us to where the fish were. Ooh, and, interesting. Uh, yeah, it was super interesting. I've never really done it like that anywhere else that I've fished. But I, I don't remember exactly. It was a long time ago, but I don't remember exactly how we figured that out. But all of us came together and said, just follow the birds until we find the life. And um, How big know, were these bird piles? The bird piles were not huge. But if we saw five or six birds um, moving from land offshore, we would follow, we would head in that direction. And sure wow. enough, we'd come up on the piles. It's not, you know, I wouldn't Isn't say Mother nature incredible. It is incredible. And the birds just naturally knew where the fish were obviously. And they always have, they always will, you know, but it was, it was so interesting. And then once we, we got on, once we started getting some good numbers and getting good bites and finding, we'd find the bait and the fish were always in the bait, of course. And the cool thing was, well, like, you what, know, what, what, what was the bait? I'm sorry. 
it was a lot of like uh small skipjack tunas and 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 you know basically small uh bonitas um, how big are these fish for the people at home these fish were small these fish were these the, the bait fish over there were small anywhere from two to eight pounds i would say they weren't they weren't like what you guys experience out there in the tom well but you know? i mean two to eight two to eight pounds if you've never fished i mean if you've only fished inland that's a that's a big size bait yeah really yeah that's 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 a small bait fishing over there you know small tuna over there but um are there larger tunas around this bait or is it no just not really N- not really we did not see um or catch i do not remember catching a single yellowfin while we were there i'm sure they were there um i do remember on the on the way there seeing a pod of the largest yellowfin tunas allison tunas i've ever seen we had two or three on i would say I'm not kidding you when I tell you when I rolled, I was driving the boat when we pulled up on the school, we were traveling and we had put the Marlin lures out and, um, on was the way to the mothership you were driving or the hook. No, no, this was, this was just the, the second hooker on its own bottom. And, oh, cool. um, and I was on shift, you know, it was, a it was an early morning shift and I was on shift driving and I, I pulled up on the school of yellow fins. And, uh, all I can tell you is I thought they were blue fins. That's, that's how big they were. and uh that's how big the explosions were and i I swore there were blue fins until i got close and then we hooked up we hooked a triple and we actually lost all three of those fish but they were yellow how many lures were you pulling uh we were pulling four lures yeah four Four lures lures and you had three on yeah we had three on and they uh, they were all giant fish and we pulled it we you know i don't know what the deal was we just usually don't pull off three fish in a row like that but we pulled all three of them off and, well, um, let me tell you from my experience, sometimes fishing is just a bitch. <laughs> yeah, especially, I mean, fish that size, you don't you don't really expect to pull off when it inhales a lure, you know, but that's fishing. Hey, we know that, you know, anything's yeah, we possible. Know that. Well, that, that's what makes a big fish special is that they're not easy. Yeah, those those, those were amazing. I, I, you know, we could, there's no way we would have dealt with those three fish at the same time anyway, but one would have been nice. But I, I, I mean, I'm telling you, they were giant class. And obviously we fished that think? same area. Three to four hundred pounders. They're just yeah. I would definitely or... say that. I would definitely say it's three to four hundred pounders because uh, that year I ended up catching my own personal best on the rod and reel, which is a three hundred and two pound yellowfin. And then was um, that the video I saw where you're hungover as fuck? Yes, yes, yes. I was. We had yeah. a big night out, and uh, I just wanted to get it over with and basically push the rod, the reel in the sunset. Uh, Robert Cujo Brinkmeyer wired it, and he was in as bad a shape as I was in, and. Uh, Anyway, we got the fish in a boat. It was it was awesome. It was, it was super. <laughs> well, cool. that's all that matters. So you had a yeah. big night. You went out there, laid into him, and yeah. uh, God, I really yeah. like Cujo. I, I've only met him a couple of times. I met him at Galati's, and I wish I had more time to talk to him. He just seems like a great guy. Yeah, Cujo's awesome people, man. I I was his mate for a season or two there, and uh, we had a really good time together. I, I you know Cujo was my friend. Before and after, and uh, he is James definitely... Robert. James Robert is his real name, right? No, no, no. James James Roberts. That's Chewy. That's Chewy. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that's uh, Chewy. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, yeah. James, another well, legend. You know. Yeah, he is another guy. So wait. So I get confused. So um, now I'm Cujo. messed up because Cujo, Cujo that I met. Yeah. Wait, does this sound right? Did I drink with Cujo in Anna Maria, Florida, or am I mistaken? Uh yeah, you that... did. No, You're I did. Correct. Okay, that's what I you thought. Did. Yeah, I thought I you met, did. I thought I got hammered with him a few times in Galati's. 
You yeah. did. When when you and I were working together on a 74, or yeah. maybe even you with Chris after yeah. I left. Um, yeah, so Cujo was a part of that operation, absolutely. Okay, okay, that's what I thought. But be honest, it got a little... Um, foggy? Yeah, it got a little foggy, because there was like this, like, uh, my, my life kind of went different. Do you remember me? There was like kind of this, like, weird... There was like I was doing like fucking jazzercise classes and shit with like this fifty year old <laughs> widow. Do you remember this? Yes, yeah, I yeah, do yeah, actually. Yeah. But she had like a Donzi and a couple other sports boats and like I remember this. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I was like Richard Simmons. I had a fucking headband on and I was doing all these. Like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's weird. Oh. I don't know. Anytime you start dealing with a millionaire, fucking, you know, like anyway, like. Okay, so that's what I thought. <laughs> You're jumping around a lot yeah, here, yeah. man. We've gone from Bomb Bomb to Richard Simmons, man. This yeah, is, yeah, this yeah. Well, classic. I know. I just wanted to make sure you were saying Cujo because I, I mean, I remember drinking with that guy, but I also remember at the same time, like this fucking, like total, like cougar pulling me out of this bar when I was like in my early twenties. He's like, "You gotta leave now," and I'm like, "Man, I don't know. Is that true? I don't know." But I, I thought that was Cujo. I remember right? the story. I remember this distinctly. Yeah, yeah. What, what was the name of that bar? The Square Grouper or something that was at Galati's? Oh, man. Oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't remember. I just I remember, remember it was Anne-Marie, Florida. I remember. Yes. Yeah. All I know is I met this woman in a bar, and I, I was drunk. I mean, that's just kind of. You know. Yeah, I was drunk. The next thing I know, though, I remember the next fucking day, somehow I was in jazzercise classes or, like, some kind of, like, fucking workout class with this girl <laughs> And she like, and, and we went, I went to this class with her and like, she gave me like, and then like at the end of the class, she gave me like a fucking, like some video game system. And I'm like, I don't play video games. She's like, well, this is what, no, no. Like, she's like, I don't like, uh, she's like, uh, she's like, oh no. Like my last boyfriend loved these too. I'm like, well, I, I don't play video games. She's like, well, just take it. And I remember having like, I don't know what the fuck it was like a Sega or like some kind of PS2 video games. <laughs> And I remember just like giving this thing, and it probably cost like three or four hundred dollars to like some random. Play. I'm like, I don't play video games, so like, I don't know what the fuck this thing is. But that was kind of like Anne Marie, Florida. It was like I would go out, and then like the next day, this girl would like uh, have like random shit to give me. She's like, Oh, I want you to have this, and I'm like, oh, Okay, great, thanks. And then paying we, you for your services, paying you for your services. Is that what you're saying? Well, I, you know, like with a more woke culture, I was probably. I may or may not have been taken advantage of, but it's hard to say. But I remember that all the gifts ended when we went to um, – we left there and we went to um, Costa Rica. Costa Rica, I yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember we went to Long Key and then we went to um, Port Antonio, Jamaica, and then Costa Rica. Well, I could probably talk about that for 12 hours. That's that's another podcast. That's a whole other <laughs> podcast. Yeah, exactly. I had a great time on that. But anyways, I don't know. I got on the side. Of, I got it on the side. Uh, oh, I do remember this about that girl, and this is kind of random. Her, she had dated like some like uh, she had dated some like bodybuilder, and her son's name was Iron. Now Iron is probably like, holy fuck, how old would that kid be now? He might even be rusty at this point. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, we'll 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 just keep moving. So in your time in Ghana, what was the yes. biggest fish you ever saw? Did you catch the biggest fish you ever saw? In Ghana, no. Um, oh, you did. We had we no, we did not. We had the women's fifty pound record on, and I can I, I can say that fairly confidently. Uh, Bo Jennings was uh, on the leader. I was on the gaff. I was on the gaff. 
Uh, we fought. This is the longest fight I've ever had. How long? Um, uh, it was three hours and change, a little over three hours on on IGFA fifty pound tackle. And uh, the girl in the chair actually, um, she ended up becoming my girlfriend, believe it or not. But um, doesn't surprise time, me, you scumbag. Yeah, at, at the time, <laughs> at the time, she was just uh, she was kind of a guest, yeah. and uh, she was not intended to be on the rod. Um, she had zero experience, but did an amazing job on the rod. Goes to prove that women make the best anglers in the world. And um, she fought this fish like a champion. That's all I can tell you. Like, what do you mean by that? By anything. women make the best anglers? Because I well, women, believe, women, women, I make the, women, women make the best the anglers best. too. But why do you say that? Absolutely, and it's very simple. Okay, women, women are are they don't have egos. They don't. They understand that they. They can't muscle the rod, so they use more finesse. Um, where men have a tendency to get worn out quickly trying to muscle a fish, and they don't use finesse. Women use number one their body weight, and then they they take they 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 listen when uh, they understand that they're they don't have anything to prove to the guys that are trying to show them how to do it, which is awesome. And most women take instruction much better than men do. They don't have an ego. They don't have testosterone. They understand that they have to wind the fish to the boat, and there's a technique in doing that where men almost seem like they have a chip on their shoulder and they got something to prove and they got to look like a tough guy. Well, I know you and I know, but I'd much rather take a 15-year-old girl who has never been fishing a day in her life over a guy who's caught five blue marlin and thinks he's a pro. You know what I mean? Well, for me, it's over 18, but I know what you're saying, yeah. Well, yeah, you, well, well, you know what I'm saying. I, yeah, no, we're talking about fishing here, Kenton. Um, I'm just fucking with you. No. So, definitely. yeah, no yeah so it's some of the most spectacular yeah. catches I've ever been a part of, um, fortunately, you know, have been with women. And, and I, I, I'll take a woman angler any day over a, a musclehead dude, you know. Um, I agree. But, but again, it was, it was a huge fish. Uh, it was our first day fishing that season. It was the 2003 season. Our first day, our first bite. Um, I'm not going to tell you how big I th- we think the fish was there. You'll never know. Cause it's still swimming. And I, I don't, you know, what do they say? if you don't, don't say it, if you don't weigh it. Right. So, well, that is the um, same, my friend. Don't say if you don't weigh it, that that's actually that's one right. of the problems I think we have with the social media culture is that, sure. uh, we throw a lot of numbers. If you want to ask me like, um, so on and off, uh, isn't on the reef and, when I first started fishing, uh, if you didn't kill it, you just said 900, 950 plus. Yeah. One thing I have noticed yep. over yep. the years, and this is probably fine for marketing and everything. Everybody and their brother yep. calls them thousand pounds now that they let them go. And the old school guys would sure. never, ever do that. Now, a thousand never pound fish it. has nope. always been a fish, a, a very special fish. And um, to actually put it in the boat has been a is a very is it even a larger accomplishment? So um, that saying, "Don't weigh it, don't say it." I believe I, I believe that. I violated that recently yep. in my book. Um, so if people want to hate on me, that's fine. But I truly believe the biggest blue marlin I ever caught, I let go, and. Um, I, you know, if someone says, fuck that guy, he, it wasn't a thousand pounds. You know what I'm going to say? If you're old school enough, I agree with you. I shouldn't have said that, but, uh, I truly yeah. believe the biggest fish yeah. I've ever caught. I let go in Hawaii. 
But definitely not in Australia. The biggest fish I ever would have stuck the axes in, I fucking lost. But on Hawaii. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, so, yeah no doubt. No doubt. Uh, the biggest fish yeah. I've ever caught, I've never even that had was a the... chance. Uh, the biggest fish I've ever seen, I never even had a chance at. Like, uh, someone asked me about that last night. I was doing uh, question and answers. And the uh, the biggest fish I've ever seen, I never even had a shot at. That fucking thing was just ridiculous. So, those... When you say you never had a shot at it, meaning well, I want to say that it came up at eight a ninety pounder next to the boat, uh, and then I thought, well, fuck. I told the crew, I go, you will never, ever, ever see that again. And then it came up and ate an eighty pound ahi next to the boat after ate a ninety pounder next to the boat, swam away like a like a like a like a you know like a dog with a bone in its mouth. And I thought, well, I've just been totally humbled. And I remember looking at that fish and thinking, well, it ate a ninety pounder and it ate a 80 pounder and there is no fishing tackle i've ever seen that could catch that fish and i was totally okay with it i remember this fish came up and we have these things called danglers here which are these um these lures that run you know um they bounce just on the surface and we use them for catching tunas and uh, this fish was within three feet of me and my only natural um thought was to reach out and try and touch his bill because it or or touch his fin because it was so ridiculously big and uh, i saw this thing eat a 90 pounder than 80 pounder and i remember thinking that no part of me thought that fish should be caught i saw that thing swim away with 80 pounder in its mouth and i thought to myself some fish just aren't meant to be caught and that was one of them you know so yeah 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 Yeah. whether you believe that or not that's fine i just yeah, you know, I've I've heard I've heard a few people say that, you know. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I, well, like yeah, yeah, maybe, no you know. What, but like, you know, I saw that me. fish again the next fishing trip. Like, uh, we came out and never got that close. It got within ten feet, and I and I just, you know, to each their own. I just remember looking at that fish and thinking, like, that fish isn't meant to be caught, and that's fine, you know. Like, I mean, I know somebody would try and hurt that fish. I remember looking at that fish and thinking, like that's the most beautiful thing i've ever seen and that's just that's that, that's just that's just perception you know yeah yeah that's awesome that's actually coming from coming from a killer like you i would say that's pretty awesome man like to to really come to that spiritual uh awareness on a on an animal is is cool yeah i mean, I mean that's, hey, that's awesome if it had made the mistake of biting a lure i'm not gonna lie i would have given it a fucking go but yeah. uh that's just ego speaking. The fact that it was just hanging around the boat, smashing yeah. big tunas. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was beautiful. And uh, yeah, it was absolutely gorgeous. That's cool. You know, and uh, we whacked a tuna. Uh, I'm sorry, Marlon. But I, all right, full disclosure, we have been kind of on a run where we've had a lot of them come up dead lately. And, uh, you know, I've killed eight. They probably should say this. I've caught 11 over 500 since um, December, but we've had eight of those 11 just be fucking dead on arrival. It's been really bad. It's been really, really bad. It's just been one of those runs. And um, I'll tell you, man, like uh, the biggest one we've weighed now uh, was uh, 713 with no head and no guts, which definitely puts it around 900 hole. It had a uh, a 54-pound tuna in it hole. And um, the truth is, man, if that fish had come up, 
if this should come up live, I really would have liked to see it. I would really like to see it go. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, Swim off. I spent my whole yeah. life in pursuit of trying to catch a giant fish. And then all of a sudden one day, uh, you know, and I've been lucky enough that I've got to kill fish over a thousand pounds, you know, and that that's kind of that egotistical right. man's desire. But all of a sudden one day, my thoughts on those kind of changed. And uh, don't get me wrong. I would fucking still in the right scenario. I would still kill a thousand pound fish. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so fucking uh, high on my horse that I would, I'm not so righteous, righteous that I wouldn't <laughs> kill a thousand pounder, but it's really weird. Uh, something changed when I had children and um, this may sound a little gay, but like something changed when I had children where all of a sudden I was more concerned about my kids being able to see a fish like that someday than myself. I don't know if that, like, I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. Do you, like I, I was more concerned about the next generation seeing a giant fish than me. Did, like, does that make kind of sense? No, because I don't have any kids, and I'm <laughs> still pretty angry at them. Well, hold on a second. <laughs> Nobody left any buffalo yeah, for me, but man. But come on, you know, like <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Tiny, I know you're I'm too kidding, well man. I'm just that, stoking uh, the fires over here. I've let plenty well, hold go, on man. A second, I've though. let plenty go that I could have. Would you not admit that your mother is a giant? influence in your fishing career and why is absolutely that? tell, tell um, us a little bit how you started fishing and why your mom's important because I, i'll, tell, I love you, your I'll mom. tell you my, my first yeah she's the warbird man the warbird is a unique bird she um my mom my mom was the one who I, my dad I just, let me just let me Go spit ahead. it out about my dad first my dad's first, uh, we could talk about motherships and traveling around the world and all this great fishing and all this cool stuff. My dad caught his first fish two years ago in his backyard in the middle of the night. It happened to be a, a, a on the Banana River in uh, Cape Canaveral, Florida. It was a sea trout. He caught it. I got it on the dock. He was super stoked. It was the first fish he ever caught in his entire life. I cooked it that night. Like 15 minutes later, it was in a frying pan. He ate it. And my dad probably gave me the greatest insult <laughs> I've ever received in my entire life. After he, like, devoured the sea trout, he looked at me and he said, man, if I knew they tasted that good and it was that much fun, I would have gone fishing Ouch. with you more when you were a kid. And I'm like, dad, shut <laughs> your lying mouth. Ouch. <laughs> right? Ouch. So, right. so, yeah, right. no, I well, let him have it on that, that about, comment. But, uh, let's not talk about back the mom with your father. Back let's talk mom. about your beautiful mother. No, no, no. My dad and I are super. My dad and I are tight, man. We're good. We're cool. He's just he he wasn't okay, a well, fisherman. He wasn't a sportsman. You know, he was a philosopher. And back to mom. Back to mom. Mom took me fishing. Mom was a uh, an absolute an absolute tiger when she was young, and she loved fishing. And she would. I can tell you, she took me. She took me fishing. Uh, on a charter boat on my 12th birthday it was on one of her uh company conferences and we got the worst she had arranged this she was she was a hospital administrator and she arranged this uh retreat for all the doctors in her hospital and she was in charge of putting the whole thing together and she every Where year put together this fishing tournament in the florida in the florida keys yes in uh, a matter of fact in hawks Cay, and uh, uh, just uh south in duck key there south island Marotta. and um Every year, mom would go on this fishing trip and catch my mice and wahoos and stuff. And and um, I was always very jealous, but I wasn't I wasn't old enough to really go with her because she, you know, it was it was part of her job. 
And on my 12th birthday, she said, all right, you're coming with me and we're going to go fishing. And, um, I, you know, I piddled around a little bit. I caught some bass and stuff in the neighborhood and bluegills and a few small saltwater fish off the pier. But, um, I went with, with friends of mine, but I, I, she took me on this boat and, uh, it was my birthday. It was my 12th birthday and I was sitting in the chair and we hooked a 225 pound blue Marlin. And that's a big fish. What's that? In Florida, in Florida, in the Keys, it was on a boat called the Suture Fancy. Uh, the captain's name was uh, Dwight O'Connell, and uh, he was he was a, a an old school, legendary Keys captain. And I spoke to him many years after after we caught that fish, and um, he had told me he had only caught like five blue marlin in the Keys in the Keys in his entire charter boat career, which spanned number of years and so on and so forth. And uh, uh, long story short, I didn't fight the fish by myself. As a matter of fact, I couldn't finish it off. I I was suffering from heat stroke and sunstroke and a doctor that was on, on board actually ended up, you know, catching it. And, uh, there's, there, there's more to the story, which we don't have to get into, but, um, we ended up killing the fish and I'll never forget that day. You know, um, they never put the fish in the boat. The mate got hurt. He had cut his what? arm on the leader really? and it was a wire leader. What's that? Yeah. The mate just didn't, you know, he, he didn't, he had never, he didn't deal with blue Marlin. I mean, those guys were fishing for my mice and, kingfish and small stuff you know and he had never dealt with a fish like that before and the, the captain was dwight was very concerned about killing this fish you know he went and dug out the flying gaffs and they were going to take it for sure and um and they they were scared to put it in the boat they never pulled it in the boat they cleated it off on the side of the boat the boat didn't have a door and uh we were way overdue getting back to the dock because i think we fought that fish for an hour and 45 minutes, I think it was, or something. It was at the end of the, the charter when we had actually got the hookup. And it actually, it ate a uh, black and orange soft head on the center rigger. I didn't know what it was at the time, but looking back, I know what it is. Halloween. And, um, and then it ate a, ba- and then it ate a ballyhoo. Uh, it, it came off on the lure and ate a ballyhoo. Um, but uh, I'll never forget my, I, I was, I wasn't seasick, but I had heat stroke and sunstroke and I didn't have any shoes on and I was just a mess. Right. And back to like a charter school day boat and they were keeping, yeah, they kept the bait in the drink box. I'll never forget this. They had the, they had the ballyhoos on a, on a beer flat in the, in the drink cooler. So not like a, I'm a 12 year old kid feeling like heat stroke in the middle of August. And uh, my mom's like, drink something. So I like reach into the cooler to grab a, to grab a seven up, you know, and there's like a ballyhoo eyeball. It was just like a calamity, you know? And uh, anyway, we killed that fish. And the moment that sticks out the most the whole day, my mom was like, go and look at that fish. Like she made me get up when I started feeling better. And uh, I, I, I'd gotten a little hydrated and stuff. She's like, go and look at your fish, you know? And I'll never forget. I looked over the side of that boat and the fish was cleated off on the side of the boat. And I looked dead in that fish's eye and uh i had never seen anything like that looking in its eye you know and, and what, uh, what'd you see in i'm that telling eye? you it was almost like man I, I i guess looking back i saw my entire future in the eyeball of that fish that one fish one fish changed the entire trajectory of my life wow. is all i can tell you that fish definitely changed my life and um, I was not excited as you would think a 12-year-old kid would be. A matter of fact, I, all I knew was pain, uncomfort, heat stroke, 
like my ears had swollen up and my hand was sore because the you know the handle was like <laughs> locking up and stuff. And I I actually told my mom. I actually told my mom. I'm like I never want to go fishing again when I got out of the chair. I was like I never want to do this again. It's the most horrible experience of my life. And my mom, my mom was was not standing for that. She was um she was like once we got back to shore and everything and they hung up the fish and I was feeling better. I was, we're taking pictures with it and stuff. I, I thought it was awesome. Like there was an actual huge crowd. Um, you know, obviously we won the fishing tournament with that fish and, and, and um, you know, there's a crowd of people gather around to look at it. And, and um, I have a picture standing there alone with that fish. My mom took long after the crowd had left. And I have that picture on my wall. I look at it just about every day. And um, it was super cool, man. That, that, that fish, I, I said, okay, this is pretty cool. And then once we got back home from the, that trip in the Keys, my mom made me research. She knew what it was. She knew how special, special of an event it was to, to interact with a fish like that, much less kill it. And um, she made me really start studying about blue marlin and reading. She was a big reader. She'd read two, three books a week. And she would buy books and made me look it up in the encyclopedias and, and learn about that fish. And within like a week or two of really learning how cool a blue marlin was, I, I was hooked. Like that was, uh, you know, I was 12 years old and, I, and, and at 13, I made the decision I was going to be a fisherman, you know? So that's, that's that story about the warbird, my mom and my mom, just, just, to, just to finish up, my mom really, uh, really supported me from walking miles out on the bridges of the keys to going on head boats and 10 foot seas where we we're the only ones on deck and everybody else is seasick to uh, fishing in the Tortugas, to flying to the Bahamas with me as I became a mate or a captain. Like, my mom really supported the fishing, you know? And she didn't really give me an ultimatum. She was like, listen, this is what you chose to do. You better not quit. You better be the best that you can be at this because if you can't do what you love well, you will never do anything. Well. Those <laughs> How good are those so, gems? Um, and, yeah, yeah, no, she, she, she stuffed it right down my throat because I think she knew I was going to, I was going to be a problem if I didn't latch on to something for a career because she I, knew I hated school. I can appreciate you know? that. And um, it, it, I, I can tell you, man, as far as my mom goes, my mom in all the tournaments and I've fished, I don't know how many tournaments I've fished, but I would say, you know, close to probably a hundred wow. in my career, um, if, if not more. Um, my mom always knew where I was in a tournament when it came to points or standings. She knew more about what was caught on the day of the fleet of any given tournament that I fished in. She knew more than I did, you know, by watching it on the computer and tracking it. And, and, uh, she was definitely into it and still is still, still loves it. I mean, she's, she is. Isn't that wonderful that your mom has been supportive? Um, my mother, I, I want to comment on this as well. My mom is a huge, huge driving factor behind my success as well. And I can honestly awesome. say that I would not have achieved a lot of the places, you know, a lot of things I did and I would not have gone to a lot of the places I went to, including Kona, Hawaii, which forever changed my life. If it wasn't for my mother um, in uh, a couple chance meetings, my mother met a woman named, I believe it was Kay Moulton, which they call Kona K, who liked to fish out of Kona, Hawaii on a flight. My mother was a flight attendant 
And if my mother had not met this woman, I likely would have never met the Kona fleet. My mother has been probably my biggest supporter since day one. So I just want to give a shout out to your mother and my mother as well, because, you know, I think uh, sometimes we don't mention it. And I'm glad you mentioned the Warbird because I love your mom. Uh, you guys even took me in for Thanksgiving one year. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, but yeah, I do. Uh, I remember distinctly. Please shout out to positive women influences in our life. So that's huge. Now, the pursuit of what's past that horizon has more to do with what's inside of you. Would you agree with that? It's really, it's really fulfilling your heart more than what anyone else cares what's on that scale. Yeah, you know, I yes, it, it, I think you're, you, the goals you set for yourself, whatever they may be, that is what drives us. That as as humans, I, I do believe that we we are goal oriented, no matter what it is, whether it's a fish or whatever. You know, um, I think I think a lot of people without goal, you know, without goals are lost. It's like, you know, I, I think goals Ooh, are, what, accomplished, what a, what especially as fishermen, that, right? Man. So I know, and, and I know I can tell you this, like my mission from early in my career was to catch a thousand pound blue Marlin. That was did you, the mission. That's did what you care I what ocean? trained for. That's what I, I, I did not care what ocean. And frankly, I went around the world for little or no money to accomplish that goal. And I, you know, I, that, that's why the motherships, that's why I always tried to get jobs on motherships because I knew they went to the farthest, most uh, productive locations and, and my odds would be greater. I didn't care about money. I didn't care about how much money I made because I had this goal. Right. And I knew I was going to get a tremendous amount of experience along the way. And I was smart enough when I was young to know that, that with experience comes money and, 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 and a lot of other things get the experience first and then, you know, that, that, then the, the success will come. You'll never be successful with experience, you know? So I did not care about, uh, I did not care about money. I cared about the goal That's of so catching beautiful. this fish. And believe me, I, I connected with the, with that fish numerous times before we actually were successful. And I, how many thousand tell you, do you think you when we put the, before you caught one? Man, I, I, I again, I you know, if you didn't weigh it, don't well, say it's it, okay. But how, how many this. truly big fish you think you? I, I I would say I would say going on other people's words that had way more experience than myself. I would say I connected in the Atlantic. I connected uh, two times, two times. I would say before we killed that fish and that was from 19 that was a, that was at that point we killed it it was more or less like a 15 years I was wow. going on 15 years of being wow. a professional fisherman and I connected tw two times uh and the third time was a charm and and of course luck well, pure luck but um that story was pretty cool we were fishing and we killed wow, extremely wow. violent on the gaffs what did that fish end up going it, yeah i didn't think we were getting what did the grander end up going? say that again uh what did it end up going a thousand thirty fish you caught when yep, you were there yep. or the biggest one you saw that that's the biggest fish we yeah. killed it was not the I biggest am. one i saw we saw 
Yeah, the one we had on a fifty pound was bigger than that. Catch fit, the one I that believe. was a thousand thirty. Okay, that's a pretty good uh, kill. Twenty five minutes. Pretty professional. Yeah. 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 It was a kill. That's also on video. And uh, it was a fast kill. It was cool. I pulled a muscle in my chest. Um, we Did had a tough gas shot. Bo got the gas. I. Uh, yes. I actually hand fed that the lure to the fish. Fish knocked down the lure. Um, again, it was fate that we even caught this fish. We had we had an oil leak. We turned around. We came back to the river mouth. We would never have fished there in a million years. Um, and we just happened to be trying to kill some time figuring out this oil leak, and the fish bit. Um, it knocked the lure oh, yeah, down. It ate a hold on, red and black sadu Calcutta. I know what that What's means, but the, the listeners aren't. So you're telling me you were heading back to the harbor. One of the engines was leaking, and no, 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 no. I was trying Please to tell the story earlier, but um, okay. So we ran twenty. It was about okay. thirty miles. We ran. Yep. Okay. And basically, we started fishing. And we were going to put a we, we were going to put this bowling pin teaser out, which is a teaser that we put off. Why of the do they call it a bowling okay? teaser? And because it looks okay. like a bowling pin. Well, you let me uh, tell it's, story. It's, again, <laughs> I know I got to explain it to. I'll again, it's not. It it's not for second, me. Right? It's for the people at home. I, I know. I know it's saying, for your listeners. I get it. There's a lot of people that don't. I get it. Yeah, I hear you. Um, so. We kept this teaser in the lazarette and we went into the lazarette. The lazarette is a hole in the deck for your listeners. And we, uh, we went to pull the teaser out and noticed that there was oil in the bilge in the bottom of the boat. So immediately we did an engine room check and we're in our normal fishing grounds and the engine, the engine room was covered in oil. And this is just how things happen, right? This is fate, right? So this, we figured we had a major engine problem at the time because I'm telling you the entire engine room was covered in black oil. It turns out what had happened was a breaker was left on. Uh, I, I'm sorry, uh, 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 the pump, the oil change pump was left on in a bucket of oil. And one of the guys that worked on the boat with us, uh, one of our, 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 our African guys that rode with us and filmed and helped us, had hit the breaker by accident and spit oil all over the engine room okay we did not have a mechanical issue we thought we did okay so after going down sea which was back towards the river mouth where we came from where our house was for like an hour and a half two hours trying to diagnose a problem that we didn't have we figured it out so once we got the engine room cleaned up and we got everything figured out we realized we weren't having a mechanical issue and the, the engines weren't low on oil or anything we decided to fish right in front of the river mouth that we had run out of. So we put the lures out and literally got this grander bite within like 10 minutes. All right. So the fish came up, it ate a lure, it knocked the lure down. I hand lined the lure back up to put it back up and out. We're going to Did you know this was a big fish at the time? And basically, yeah, I knew it was, I saw the bite and, um, you know, like I said, when he knocked down, he pulled a, a few feet of drag and it came off and I hand lined the lure back up to the mark which is a hanger that hangs in the outrigger clip. And um, I just held it there for a second because I saw the fish behind it. And honestly, I knew the fish was big. And I, of course, I called it 500 as they all pretty much were. And the fish came back on the lure and I pretty, it came up and I dropped it down. It opened its mouth and I dropped the lure down its throat. It turned sideways and I knew it was a good size fish. I, there, and he even asked me, he's like, 
Clay asked me, he was, Clay's the captain. He said, uh, he said, how big's that fish? I said, ah, 500. It's a good one. You know, it's a nice one. Got him on. Um, had, didn't have the boss in the chair, but had the boss's guest in the chair. Uh, his name was Jim Perkins. And, um, he was in the chair and we we're off and running behind this fish. We cleared everything just like, you know, we normally would. And we're backing up after the fish. And I got the leader. I got the leader uh, about, and this is all in video. I got the leader in about six or seven minutes. And I choked up on this fish. And uh, we backed right up on it. I got the leader. The fish was completely calm on the surface. I grabbed the leader and the back came out of the water. And I was like, holy shit, this is the one, right? This is it. The fish, the I, I never for I never forget it. Fish kind of rolled on its side for a second, and almost like it didn't even know it was hooked. Looked at me, like I looked it in the eye, and it was on its side, and it kind of sized up the boat, and then it unloaded about 150 yards off the reel at like 50 hmm. pounds of drag, and uh, we backed right back up on it again, and uh, I got a leader. I knew what we were dealing with at that point. And you can see it on the videotape. I turned around. We had a conversation. The gaffs came out as it pulled 150, 200 yards off the reel. The gaffs came out. We were always ready for a big fish. We clipped the gaffs on, came back on it. I got the leader a second time. I hung on. And gaff, I was waiting for Bo to, you know, give me a few more pulls on the leader before to turn the fish. The fish started turning. I had her turning. Uh, she was going away from the boat, and I had her turning. And I figured Bo was going to wait till I got the turn and got the slack out of the leader. And he actually took a shot and got her in the tail going away, which all hell broke loose at that point because he gaffed her basically right even with the anal fin. And um, the gaff ended up tearing. I think it was like 27 oh, inches shit. gaff tore. And uh, yeah, it, it, it went nuts. The fish went underneath the boat. The leader got caught in the transom zinc. And... Uh, we weren't trying to break a world record and I knew we were about to saw the leader off in the zinc and it actually shows on the videotape and we had a rookie angler. I reached back and, and back the drag off on the reel, which I think saved the leader. You know, I dumped the leader and back the reel off. And because we still had the gap, we had a single gaff in the fish. And uh, all I can tell you, man, it was, it was, it's on videotape. It's on YouTube. If you look up Ghana, 1030 pound blue Marlin, it was, it was full on war. And, uh, I mean, the tail was kicking waves that it kicked one wave that almost knocked me down when I was trying to get the second gaff in it. And it was not the prettiest kill, but it was extremely violent. And that fish was, that's, that fish was straight from hell, man. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way, but it, it was a war on the gaffs is all I can tell you. You know, it was a super well-conditioned fish. And that thing fought till I, I really did not think we were going to get that fish in the boat, man. Even when we wow. had a gaff in it, you know? Wow. Yeah, it was cool. We got lucky. We got very, very lucky with that fish. It was not the prettiest kill. Well, but at it, the end of the day, you got the fish you know? and that is the biggest. We got thing. the fish. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, you know, like I, I was talking about the spiritual aspect of it, you know, we put that fish in the boat and uh, I was in, I was in complete disbelief. I, I knew, I knew honestly in my bones, I knew it from the first time I got the leader on the fish. I knew, I knew it was going to go, you know? And, uh, um, how, you know? we got the fish in the boat. There wasn't really a doubt. I just, I, I just had never been that close up to one with the, with those proportions. You know, the fish was, uh, it was 142 Holy and shit, a half in short fish. measurement. And, uh, 
Yeah, and it had uh, I think it was a sixty. If I remember, I was sixty four uh, so and a half. You were there all day. I think it was. Yeah, and, and it was twenty one wow, inches on the wow, tail. You interesting know? proportion and, um, fish, really. Yeah. Yeah, it was a very long, it was a very long, thick fish. It wasn't skinny. It had big shoulders on it, you know, had a huge shoulder on it, but it was a long fish. And uh, yeah, we got the fish in the boat. You know, we took it back. We weighed it on a IGFA certified scale and uh, we fed a village. We fed a village. Yeah, I mean, you know, literally every, everything down to the eyeball. After with it. We did. Literally, we had a line from the villagers who lined up in our yard and each got a piece, you know, and uh, Frank, one of the guys, uh, Frank Kokolegba, he's an incredible fisherman from Ghana. He's fished all over the world. I think he's up to like six Jeez. granders or eight granders now. Super good friend. I just saw him in Mexico oh, wow. recently. He had um, made he's Mexico. like family. Good for him. Yeah. Oh, he's fished, he has fished all over the world from Ascension to – Ghana to Bomb Bomb. He lives in the Dominican Republic. Wow. Republic now. Um, he's he's hands down probably one of the best mates in the world. You know, as far as big fish experience goes, and uh, amazing guy, amazing human being. And uh, Frank, his nickname was Frankie the Blade. He was in charge of of cutting up and distributing that fish. And I can tell you, he fed a he fed That's a village awesome, that night. Friend. You know, and uh, I mean, dozens and dozens of people took took fish and there was not one ounce of meat that went to waste the bones were boiled every we kept the bill obviously in the tail and uh there was not in the dorsal bones no, nothing went That's to waste fantastic. you know um yeah it, that that fish was a it was an amazing fish it was an amazing catch and and definitely fate you know i i say it was all luck and uh just because of where we hooked it and where we were, it was, it, it, you know, an oil leak. It goes to show you, right? You can get something as negative as an oil leak, and it can lead to definitely, I would say, the the greatest moment of my well, life. Well, you I know, know the that, interesting thing is, it, is I say this all the time, is that if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And that sounds like it was meant to be. Uh, there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. i tell you what. <laughs> I mean, after we caught that fish, I, I was kind of superstitious about it, man. I was pretty scared getting on the flight going home. I'm like, well, I, mission accomplished on this one. I, what's next? I'm kind of scared, <laughs> you know. Um, I, you know. You know how that goes, man. I, I do. I've stepped on a couple flight of flights home. where I thought, well, my life is perfect. What's that mean? I'm going to die on this one? Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, I, what's the next I get one? That. Well, you know, you know what's next? Tiny, we are pretty deep into this podcast, and you – still um contain the most interesting story that i know in the fishing interests like the whole you you contain the best fishing story i know and rather than starting it when we're already two hours deep into a podcast what i want to do if you would honor me i would like to have you back would i would love to come back because i know where you're heading with this yeah i'd like to come back i I I want to appreciate that that would be great because that's a that's a conversation that I really don't care to to, to mix with you the know. So this is what I want to do. It. Okay, I want to give you um, a few lightning round questions here before we wrap up the night that have something sure. to do with what you spoke about, but just have more to do with fishing in general. And I would like to have you come back. Could you commit to coming back to Captain K's podcast? Okay, absolutely. All right. First of all, I've got a line of questions here. Just do your best you can. If you can't do anything with them, that's fine. But uh, 
favorite saying about fishing? Go ahead. Favorite thing about fishing? Fish. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like boat. I don't like boats. I respect the ocean. I don't necessarily like it. If the ocean never had fish in it, I probably wouldn't look at it, and I definitely wow, would never amazing be amazing and boat. probably totally <laughs> true. Okay. Would you rather possess <laughs> the world's biggest marlin in your hands or the world's greatest woman in your hands? Yeah, I marlin the same way. Now. Sorry, girls. Okay. Um, next question for you. Favorite whiskey? Pappy Van Winkle. That counts. <laughs> it's a yeah, bourbon. Yeah, Does that count? Whiskey. Why is that your favorite whiskey? It's expensive. It's tasty. It's sought after. I've only drank it once, not twice. Yeah, you like butter, you like Marlin like you like your whiskey. You're fancy. Okay. Uh, favorite fish to catch? Blue Marlin and Snook right? are tied. Why Snook? Yeah. yeah. Man, I've been Snook fishing from I was a kid. And... I get equally as excited about both. Gotcha. That's awesome. And I would I'd have Go to ahead. I'd have to add a third to that. And now bluefin tuna bluefin tuna now that I've because I love eating it, but I also love the power of, of those fish. And and I got to do that experience that last year, uh year before last in uh Nova Scotia and uh I just I just blown away blown away by well, that is I another, did, conversation. That's another conversation. I love bluefin tuna. That is my background when I was a young kid. I love them to death. What was the biggest tuna you think you've caught? Man, I we the first three I caught on my own. I learned from the master Andy Moyes. We short, measured short three measurement. fish. The first three fish I caught in that yeah, the short measurement. We actually had a really cool measuring device on the side of the boat that was very close to being very accurate. Um, and, and those three fish me- measured out at a thousand eleven hundred and one between 12 oh and 1300 were the first three we caught. And we measured, big well. right there. Uh, you know, they were all fat fish. That class of fish is amazing. Those are absolutely beautiful yeah. fish. Um, I'm going to ask you some other questions. All right. Redhead. Sure. All crazy or just 90% of them? One hundred percent all crazy. Yeah, in my book, yeah. in my that, experience. I just had an interaction with a. Would you ever go home with a, with a redhead with when you were uh, sober, so or would it only be at last call? It would have to not be pre- nah, premeditated okay. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah I feel yeah, the same no. way. There's just yeah, something about call. that redhead. You don't think you want a redhead until that uh, last call light or that neon light in the strip club. Um. As my little, as my old friend Captain John Orr used to say, it may may not be what now, you want. But I have all to say need. something about uh, John Orr. As long as you're going to mention him right now, uh, he is a legend. I uh, I miss him legend. a lot. I used to drink a lot of beers with him in Costa Rica. I can remember uh, being yes, on the front pier in Los Sueños at Costa Rica, and literally. The two of us would drink beers until it was time to go fishing again the next morning. So, a huge shout out to him. I, uh, 
Huge shout out. God rest his soul. Yeah, his nickname was Little John. And once in a while, you will meet somebody that knows Little John in every corner of the world. So shout out to you, Little John. I miss you, buddy. Thank you for being there when I was a young man. He was the mayor of Mayhem. He was the mayor Mayor of Mayhem. mayhem. That is exactly uh, truth. Okay, true life in general. Uh, Life is closer to a photo on Tinder that is number one or number four. Life is closer on yeah, Tinder. Yeah, so when you look Wait, at a Tinder profile, that one, read me that is one life one. more like number one or number four? In my opinion, is closer to number four. Yeah, life. When you You're see a lady life. and she is portraying herself on a Tinder profile, yeah. is life closer to the fourth photo in her profile or number one? Oh, yeah, no. Uh, is life closer to first? I, yeah, man. I, 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 You're comparing life and That's Tinder. That's correct profiles right now this unique comparison all i can tell you is i go straight to the number four i think life is beautiful i think life every day i wake up breathing is a gift so if we're comparing life my life man i'm so happy i gotta sit on my hands stop myself from waving at okay, everybody so i, I love go, my you'll life. go home with photo four and uh, my life gets I, better I, I do too i'm just curious I mean, yeah, I guess. I, I guess. I don't I don't swipe on anything that has nothing a with a filter. Nothing with a filter. Go ahead. I, I'm telling yeah. you, I'm gonna tell you this right now about Tinder, right? I am the cat I, so we're talking about fishing and we're talking about oh, women. Huh? I am the catfish king. I have been catfished more times and I think you Wait, are you talking about yourself. man hands? In Kona, you She was good looking, yeah, she yeah, just had man hands. Yeah, exactly. Hands, I mean, she's still my good friend. She's listen, man hands is still my friend. I still keep in touch with her. But let me tell you this, I've been catfished so many times. I show up on my every single first date with a box of hush puppies. Well, well, I'm not kidding. That's how many times oh, I've been catfish. For the listener, Manhand was actually really impressive, but she, she wasn't a bad looking woman, but she definitely had some of the most aggressive hands you've ever seen. So better come with lubricant. Okay. <laughs> they were, they were more like mitts. Looked, you know what? Not even like mitts. They looked like a first baseman's glove. Um, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's not all. all right. like a well, let's not yeah, too deep into here. Now, Tiny, you have probably the best story that is untold. I know you did it on another podcast, and I'm going to have you back. I'm going to let you go because um, this cool. is a different side of you that a lot of people probably don't know. But, but we need to plug your book because uh, Tiny Jason here is the number one without a doubt inspiration for the reason that i was able to make my book a reality and not an aspiration uh jason is the first person when you guys buy my book and i hope you do or if you don't well then you're fucking missing out but when you read my book you will see that jason is the first person that i give a acknowledgement to and the reason that is is jason said hey you need to get more serious about writing your book And he had me come to a writing conference in Florida. And that writing conference in Florida forever changed my path on writing a book. And today, I can safely say that I would have not written a book if it wasn't for Tiny. And so, and it's true. When you open up your book, you will see that. When you open up Vicious Cycle, Whiskey, Women, and Water, you will see the first person that I think is Jason. Because Tiny right here is the reason that my book is a reality. And so I want you folks to not only appreciate Jason for the amazing fisherman he is, 
he has got an incredible book that's coming out that you need to buy. So, Tiny, tell us a little bit where you are in the writing process, because I would not have a book coming out next month if it wasn't for you. So and, and, and I want to acknowledge you, too, because you keep me inspired to finish mine. And, uh, you know, by you doing the work and me witnessing you do the work to finish yours so diligently, I've always admired your discipline when it came to writing your book. And I, I'm very honored. I want to tell your audience this. I'm I am. I don't know how many people have read what you have sent me, but I, I would like, I, I like to think that I've read three people have the majority seen what I've of sent your you. book. my editor. Uh, yeah, the uh, you and uh, the woman that has set yeah. up for my publicist, the actual framing. You are the only three that have actually seen yeah. what I've written and a couple chapters have gone out to an occasional girl. I'm not going to lie here and there but the only person who's any seen mass amount yeah. of what i've yeah. written is you my editor and the person who does the framing for the publicist so you is it's you well it's an it's an it's an honor for me and i can tell you like you are one gifted writer i can tell your audience this it's amazing i am constantly you set the bar for me um i can't tell you how many nights i got nothing accomplished because i had read your book and I was so into your book and the, the quality and the writing style and the flow of your book, just reading your rough, your rough, you know, edits uh, that it truly kept me inspired. You always keep me accountable. So my book is as much as credit as you give me for helping you with with your book. You, you are equally as uh, 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 influential in my life for getting my book and keeping me accountable, getting it finished. Mine is not. Mine is very close to being finished, and I am on the very last stages of it, and it should be out next year. My book um, is called Gun Key, and it is a book of inspiration written about a true story. I am the sole survivor on Earth of a domestic hijacking at sea. There's been many uh, commercial hijackings of ships like Captain Phillips and uh, you know the Maersk Alabama and so on. There's been instances of commercial hijackings at sea, but I am the only person alive who has lived through a private vessel, a private yacht being hijacked at sea. And uh, I tell the story um, pretty much in its entirety in my book, but that's really not why I wrote the book. I wrote the book um, to be more inspirational than anything else. And it's that's what's taken me so long. It's changed the format of it. And we can discuss it on a you know, I'm looking forward to discussing it with you another time. But um, um, it, it's an interesting story, and it's it, it, the story is really a blessing. I I look at it as definitely um, a gift in my life, and I'll just leave it at that for now. But uh, most people would look at it as a a very scary, horrifying uh, situation. I look I I truly look at it as a gift um, that 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 helped me and changed well, my Jason, life in a positive you know what? way. You know, and it's hard for me not to be biased because I am such a fan of you, but I am super, super honored to have Thanks. you here today. And again, this is no lie. When you guys buy my book, you will see, hopefully you buy it, You will see Jason's name honored right off the bat because there is no doubt there would not be a vicious cycle book. If there wasn't for a Jason Walcott, he is an inspiration. He's a hell of a fisherman. And more than that, he is fucking one of my best friends on earth. And at the well, I love you, dude, and I. It's and mutual. I, and I'm, I, I love you too, bro, and I don't, and I have I no problem too, saying that. That uh, my life is so much better 
for Jason uh, being part of it. And, you know, the funny thing is you don't always know who is going to forever change your life uh, when you meet them. And uh, some people, and don't take this the wrong way, they think Tiny is, uh, Jason, is kind of aggressive and a little bit intense. And I have come to learn that that intense part of Tiny is actually the most beautiful passion you will ever meet in anyone. That is the difference between good and great. And uh, we're going to have Jason back, but he is one of the best, if not the best marlin fisherman I have ever met in my life. And I have met a lot of great fishermen. And uh, this isn't just me doing a shameless plug. I love this guy. He is the kind of guy. And and I mean it, Tiny. Thanks, bro. You are the... Well, I make me blush, blush, man. Make me blush. I really appreciate it. And you deserve it. That says a lot. And sometimes in life, we confuse the hard edges with being something they're not. Tiny's hard edges, they're not rough. What they are is truly beautiful. He has been so devoted to a craft that he has taken the bullshit and thrown it out. We should be so lucky to live a life as beautiful and devoted to fishing as tiny has been. And I'm going to wrap it up and end it there. But let me tell you, take those dark parts that you think, you know, about this beautiful person and mistake not that tiny is one of the best fishermen and devoted fishermen you will ever meet on this earth. And tiny, I love you. And I thank you so much for being here. And there is no question. I want you back. So, Will you come back on my podcast? Coming back, man. Will you say when? Hey. Absolutely, man. I love you, you, buddy. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, bro. And I am so much looking forward to your book. And I I look so much forward to promoting your book. And I just want to say thank you for not only writing a book that people need to read, but thank you for being my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, bro. Thank you. I love you, buddy. Have a good one.